0: It's Jonathan welcoming you to episode eighty-eight. We're now taking votes for our top one hundred holiday countdown and Christmas party for twenty twenty. Yay! John Lennon remembered. Where were you? How did it affect you? And what did the Beatles mean to you? Social media, tape recorders, and more. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations, at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full and at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long. And to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are It's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Hello, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Are you feeling Christmassy yet? I know it must be very difficult for some people to be feeling Christmassy yet. I think some of us are in New Zealand because things are much better for us than they are in many parts of the world. I was reminded of this the other day. Bonnie and I... We're in a hotel room, or actually I should use proper grammar, we're in an hotel room in Auckland. And I did the old, let's call Ira and scan the minibar trick, because there are all sorts of bottles in there and cans, and I wanted to find out what they were. And Ira, as they usually do, did a good job. And then at the end of the call, because I mentioned that we were going to a quite large function where there were going to be nearly 500 people in attendance, and the agent said, Wow, enjoy being in a country where you can do that. And I thought, yeah, you know, we have just gotten used to some degree of normality again. And that's just not how it is for most countries. So, sending you good thoughts and vibes if you really are getting tired and finding this tough, I completely understand that. Now, as I mentioned in the promotional message, that I sent out to the Mushroom FM blog and the Mosin at Large media list, which you are welcome to subscribe to, and all the other places that it goes out, there was a chance that today's show wasn't going to happen because by Thursday, I couldn't really talk at all. I appreciate the sympathy. I do appreciate that very much. And so I thought, well, maybe I won't be able to do the show. So I'd put out a warning just in case, you know, prepare the masses and everything for disappointment or joy, as the case may be. In fact, who knows, maybe some of my team at my work where I'm chief executive might have decided that a silent chief executive is the best kind of chief executive. (laughs) Hopefully not too many think that way. But I have got some voice back. And what you'll find with this edition of the show, you see, it does take a very, very long time to produce Mosin at large. Not that I'm complaining or anything, it just does. And the only way that I can really do it is to devote a little bit of time usually every night during the week to processing the audio contributions and emails as they come in so that by the weekend I've got some things done already. Otherwise it will be too overwhelming to keep up this pace. So what you will hear throughout this edition of Mosin at Large is my voice in various states of undress. Oh, no, 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 Sorry, wind that back. I mean, in various states of unwellness. So sometimes the old voice might sound a bit better than at other times. So thank you for your persistence. If you are looking for a bit of Christmas cheer, and I think we could all use some, I am very pleased to start this week by telling you that Mushroom FM's holiday countdown is back for another year. People like traditions at this time of year don't they and the mushroom fm holiday countdown and the christmas party that goes with it is one of those traditions that people really seem to like so if you haven't been a part of this before let me explain what happens on the face of it it seems pretty ordinary and that is that on the 20th of this month that's when it's going to be this year sunday the 20th from 9 a.m eastern to 7 p.m eastern that's 2 p.m. It begins in the U.K. And you can go to the Mushroom FM schedule page to see the time difference in your time zone at the moment. We will count down the 100 songs as voted for by you. We've got a very clever algorithm that weights your ranking. So if you give a song number one rating, that gives it a higher point value in our algorithm than if you vote for the same song, say, at number 10. You see what I mean? So your order of preference Does actually matter so we collate all the votes it's all done by computer there's no jiggery pokery going on manual intervention voter fraud dominion machines (laughs) no no i don't believe in that don't (laughs) but it is all done by this uh, incredible machine algorithm that works out the top 100 songs as voted for by mushroom fm listeners and we play those songs But there's another really cool element to this, and that is that we have a Christmas party at the same time using predominantly social media. But if you're not on social media, don't feel excluded by that, because you can also engage with our countdown hosts, who this year are Gino J, Sarah Hillis, Gordon Luke, Damo McMorrow, and me. You can engage with us by email if you like. When you vote you get sent an invitation to our virtual Christmas party. We do hang out a lot on Twitter, and people interact with one another and have a lot of fun and swap stories and that kind of stuff. And just before the countdown starts, we allocate everybody who has voted and received an invitation to our Christmas party to one of four tables that are named after the first four reindeer in Twas the Night Before Christmas. Now, you know who they are, right? Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, and Vixen. Bonnie likes it when she gets on the Vixen table because she used to have a CNI dog called Vixen. How fortuitous is this? We do have an algorithm that takes care of this too, but in this case, not with the voting algorithm, but with this algorithm that assigns people seats, we do have the ability to override that. That is because people do like it when family members are seated together. So if you vote and your significant other votes and your children vote and you all want to be at the same virtual table, then we do make that happen. See, it is an awful lot of fun to encourage people to be merry at this Yuletide occasion. We give crackers, Christmas crackers to people who participate. And those Christmas crackers are assigned to the table at which you are seated. Now, when we first did this countdown, which was, I think, 2011 or 2012 or something like that, I was flabbergasted and flabbergasted to realize another difference between America and most of the rest of the, at least, English-speaking world, and that is that in America, it is not that common to have Christmas crackers. A lot of Americans have never heard of them before and think that they are food. And when I realized this, I, I really was surprised. I had no idea that Christmas crackers weren't as big in the United States as they are in many other countries. So I will explain to you what a Christmas cracker is. A Christmas cracker is not edible. It's a long cylindrical object that has a string at either end. And you normally pull a Christmas cracker with someone. So they get one end of it, you get the other, and you count one, two, three, boom! And then when you pull, it goes bang. There's a little bit of explosive in it or something. It goes bang. And then you can unwrap the Christmas cracker. And they normally have a ridiculous party hat that makes you look quite absurd that your family members insist that you put on your head. There's normally a toy of some kind. Maybe sometimes it could be a tooty whistly type toy that your kids will love and will drive you bonkers because they keep tooting it. Uh, Hopefully it'll just be like a harmless animal type toy. And the best part is that they have a joke inside these Christmas crackers. And these Christmas cracker jokes are the worst groaner jokes you have ever heard. They have to be really groaner jokes to make their way into a Christmas cracker. They're certainly a big part of our Christmas table. They're a big part of Christmas tables in many parts of the world. So you get awarded Christmas crackers. They're only virtual. It's it's another word for points, essentially, when you do something meritorious to contribute to the party. And when the countdown and party is on, on the 20th of December, you'll actually be able to go to a scoreboard page and monitor this in real time. So we have some Santa's elves working behind the scenes. And when one of the countdown hosts say, oh, that was a funny Christmas joke, or that was a witty comment or whatever. They can assign crackers to you, which then go to your table. So you'll hear them being assigned and then you can look up on the scoreboard how your table is doing. So there is a bit of friendly rivalry between these four tables, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer and Vixen. And you can get bragging rights for a year if your table ends up being the table that wins at the end of the countdown period when we lock it all down and tell you what went to number one. So it really is an awful lot of fun. And gosh darn it, we could sure use a lot of fun right now. If you've not participated before, I hope you'll give it a try. It really is great. And voting is open now. If you have participated before, hopefully you will know how much fun the Mushroom FM holiday countdown and Christmas party is and that you will participate again. So how do you vote? You go whenever you're ready. Like now, you know, because you know how busy Christmas gets, right? Things are going to get in the way before you know it. So get it done. Get it done. Vote at mushroomfm.com slash countdown 2020. All one word, mushroomfm.com slash countdown 2020. And I'm going to give you a Mosin-esque tutorial on how the voting process works to incentivize you to get in there and make the Yuletide gay. Make it gay, I tell you. I have now visited. MushroomFM.com slash countdown2020. And when I read the title bar with Jaws, it says Holiday Countdown and Christmas Party 2020 Mushroom FM Google Chrome. So that's the one we want to be at. That's good news. I'm going to now navigate by heading. Recent blog post heading level two. And just keep going here. Navigation heading Holiday Countdown and Christmas Party 2020 heading level one. And there's a lot of information here that explains essentially what I've just explained to you now. But if we keep navigating by heading...
1: How to vote and join the party heading level 2.
0: We'll keep going. Cast your vote now heading level 2. That's the one you're interested in, casting your vote now. So we'll have a look at this. I'll do a say all. Cast your vote now. Have your say and earn an invitation to our Christmas party by telling us your top 10 favorite
1: holiday tunes. Voting closes at 11.59pm Eastern on December 18th. Just like any music countdown... Ranking something as number one means it's
2: your favorite song. For your vote to be accepted and counted by our system, please nominate a song for all 10 positions. In each position, either type your song and
0: artist in the box or select from our list of suggestions. Summary, please select your top top. Now we have the voting form itself. And if you want to just get straight to the voting form, you can, of course, just navigate to the first form field on the page. In JAWS, you can do that by pressing the letter F, when navigation quick keys are active, which they are by default. So if I press F now. Position one, write the name of a song here if you like, edit. There are two ways in which you can vote for every position. You can type in the name of a song, or if we press tab one more time. Call three row one, combo box, select a tune for position one. We have a list of songs that gets longer every year Because whenever anybody suggests a song that we don't have in our database, we just add it. For example, if I were to nominate Happy Christmas, War is Over by John and Yoko, which I may well do as my number one song this year because of the 40th anniversary of John's death, I can just type HAP quickly in this combo box. Happy Christmas, War is over John Lennon. And that's my vote. It's in position one. So then I can tab again. Call to row three. Position two, write the name of a song here if you like at it. If I want, I can just type the name of a song, for example, Silent Night, because who doesn't like tender and mild infants? Nom nom. Now, I would say a couple of things about this. The first is that when we're talking about really popular songs or carols like Silent Night or Hark the Herald Angels Sing or, you know, that sort of thing, we generally don't accept specific versions of the song. We do make a few exceptions, and I realize it's a little bit woolly and slightly arbitrary. For example, we do have two different versions of Mary's Boy Child because they're so different, and some people who love one hate the other. Oh, the politics of Christmas. So you can vote for Mary's Boy Child by Harry Belafonte, and you can vote for Mary's Boy Child by Boney M. You get that, right? Because they're so different. But if we were to accept every single version of, say, The Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, I mean, we could end up with a hundred different versions of Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. That makes for pretty boring radio, you know. So we do reserve the right to pick a version of popular songs just to keep it wieldy and to keep variety in the countdown. So you have the choice. Either type in the name of a song or just press tab and scroll through the list if you need some inspiration. We do have a human, a real live human, tabulating your entries. So if you don't quite know who sings a particular song, as long as it's a Christmas song, as long as it has a holiday theme, you're welcome to just type it in if that's the easiest way for you to cast your vote. If we feel that you have voted for a song that is not a holiday song, we will try and contact you. So be sure to give us a valid email address to say we don't think your vote is valid. What do you want to do? And if you don't give us a valid email address and you cast an invalid vote and we can't contact you, then your vote will be put in the disqualification pile and could be considered if Supreme Court action is ever filed. Yeah. So don't go there, man. Don't go there. Vote for a Christmas song. Now, so we just tab through the list. Call free row two. Combo box. Select a tune for position two. And on and on it goes. So we'll just tab through here quickly. Call, call, really call. straightforward. Either type in the edit box or choose from the combo box. Call ro- and this also, of course, does work on the phone of I as well and other mobile devices. Call to call three. row. Call to call three. Row 10. Come your full name. Edit. We need your full name for your votes to be valid because obviously we want to assign you to a table. Your email address. Edit. Self-explanatory. Twitter name optional. It. Edit. This is cool because what happens is that when we publish the seating charts, which tells you to which table you have been assigned, if you give us your Twitter name, we publish that. And that's kind of cool because it means that people, when they're using the Mushroom FM hashtag, which unites this event, they can tweet their fellow table members. It's a cool way to get to know people. But your Twitter name is optional. Any extra things you think we should know. For example, you may wish to tell us why you chose a particular song edit. We do look at this notes field, and it can be nice when we're counting down the top 100 to say, you know, Fred Frisbee voted for the song at number one, and he chose it because it reminded him of when his big sister hit him over the head with a pitchfork or something, you know. Now we'll press tab. 52, 100, or 61, which of these is the lowest edit? Now we have an accessible capture option here. Some people overthink some of these questions, but they usually have very obvious answers. For example, sometimes they have a thing like, what is Richard's name? The answer is Richard, or who is Richard? And the answer is Richard. So, so don't overthink it. We have to put this accessible capture in here because without it, we were getting deluged and deluged with fake votes. I tell you, you would think that they'd have other elections to be busy interfering with. So this capture protects the integrity of the vote. So in this case, of course, what was the question after all that? 52, 100 or 61, which of these is the lowest edit? So that's it's obvious, right? Text. You just type the number 52 and that's the accessible capture. That's the human test. And then we press tab. Submit your votes button. And you will get a confirmation thanking you on the uh, next page. And you'll also get an email confirmation as well. So that is how you vote. So please do. We'd love to get you vote. We'd love to get you participating in this. I just think we need a bit of Christmas cheer and a bit of Christmas fun more than ever this year. If you would like to be a part of it, we would love to have you as a part of our holiday countdown at Christmas party. Votes are open now at mushroomfm.com slash countdown
2: 2020. Well, on
0: Tuesday, 8 December, it'll be the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's assassination. Mushroom FM will, of course, as we've mentioned before, be devoting 24 hours of programming to commemorate one of the most important losses in music in the 20th century. And when we talk about John Lennon, we're talking about much more than an extraordinarily gifted singer-songwriter. He was a thought leader, political activist, trendsetter, peacemaker, poet, visual artist, and so much more. Because of the violent nature of his death and how young he was when he died, how much promise there still was to fulfill, and he just celebrated his 40th birthday a couple of months earlier, some have elevated John Lennon to sainthood. John would have been the first to say that he was no saint. He would have ridiculed any such idea. In his youth, he was violent. He even wrote in one of his own songs, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Without intervention, he may well have even killed a man early in the Beatles' career. He had a tendency to be fearful, and therefore mocking of, disabled people. He could be cutting towards people he disliked, and who he didn't perceive to be at his intellectual level. His troubled childhood and losses of important people in his life at critical times left him fragile. Yet he could also be extremely kind and vulnerable. He was a truth-seeker, a curious soul. He sought opportunities for personal growth. When he fell for people or philosophies or causes, he fell very hard. He was all in, or he wasn't in at all. He was a genius, a complex, troubled, gifted, wonderful genius. Over the last month or so, in preparation for our day of commemoration on Tuesday, I've listened to a lot of media actuality from the 8th of December and going into the early hours of the 9th, actually reporting on John's assassination. And something someone said on a Los Angeles rock station the night of the 8th of December stuck with me. He said, Even if you think you didn't like the Beatles, you owe them a lot more than you realize. And that is so true. We have the Beatles to thank for many other famous artists and groups, brilliant musicians, and talented singer-songwriters. Even that one TV performance in America on the Ed Sullivan Show on the 9th of February 1964 changed the musical landscape forever. That was the night that many famous artists of the future decided, that's my future, that's what I want to do. The Beatles rescued music from the doldrums, bursting onto the scene and reinvigorating music with originality and energy. And as they grew in confidence and stature and ability, they took pop music from a disposable fluff to true musical works of brilliance that people still listen to all these years later. Recording became an art form in itself. The Beatles are probably the most popular group in the history of popular music, so those who don't like or appreciate them are a tiny minority. And my love for the Beatles and their story is so much a part of me that it's difficult to analyse it sufficiently to articulate it. But as a kid, it wasn't just the music I loved. It was even more than the unlikely partnership forged with their producer George Martin and all the technical cleverness that fascinated the geeky child in me. I marvelled at the randomness of it all. Very much like the fact that life here exists on planet Earth So many random factors had to come together for the Beatles to be what they were. What would have become of them with a different manager, a different producer? What if Paul never went to that Walton village fate back in 1957 when he met John? What would have happened if Pete Best hadn't been fired to make way for Ringo? And while we're on what ifs, if guns weren't so easily obtainable in the United States Would the Beatles have recorded more eventually? Would the worthy cause of Live Aid have been sufficient for them to agree to be the star act? The Beatles inspired me as a kid because they were very ordinary guys with a background I could relate to who changed the world. They weren't even particularly good at school. John was positively disruptive. They couldn't wait to see the back of him. They didn't even have any musical training yet they became the subject of musical analysis so intense that they considered it ridiculously snooty and it made them laugh. In a highly class-conscious society, they shattered the class barriers. They showed me that with hard work, if you're good at what you do, and with a big dollop of luck, you can succeed. When you hear interviews with John just before his death, and you hear many of the tracks on the Double Fantasy album, You hear someone at peace, jovial, glad to be back, recording again. As Bernie Torpin so eloquently put it, it's funny how one insect can damage so much grain. The 8th of December is a difficult day for me, but as Yoko has said, we should celebrate the fact that he lived and all that he gave us, not dwell so much on how he died. And so on Tuesday we will recall where we were how we heard, how it was covered. But for the majority of that 24-hour period, we will do just that. Celebrate the incredible legacy he has left.
3: Hello Jonathan, it's Grace here. It's difficult for me to pick a favourite album by the Beatles, really. I would say the one that I least like is uh, Let It Be. I'm not so keen on that album at all. I think one of my favourite albums by the Beatles, I would say is uh, Revolver, and I also love Rubber Soul, and I I like some of the tracks on um, the White Album and Help as well, and Hard Day's Night. There's so many albums that they've made, and I just love the Beatles, as you know. Like yourself, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles. I remember the day that John Lennon was assassinated, and I'll never forget it. Lloyd and I had had just been married, what, uh, three years And I remember waking up that morning and hearing on the news, and I remember I just burst into tears at the time. I couldn't get over it. And, you know, I couldn't play John's music for a while. It took me a while to get used to the idea that that he had died. And I still feel it every year, like yourself. It's it's awful what had happened to him. Once so young and fully talented... John Lennon was, and uh, I'll tell you, I I just, oh, it's it's just awful every year when I think about it. I'm glad I can play his music now. So I'm looking forward to hearing the programmes that you're going to do about John on the 8th of December, and I want to thank you in advance for doing that for us. It's really good of you because a lot of work goes into that, and I look forward to hearing. Eh, uh, a lot of that. I don't think I'll be able to stay awake for 24 hours, but I'll do my best to hear as much as I
4: can. Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Upton. So, my memories of listening to the Beatles, well... I think this all started back when I was three years old, I want to say, and I also believe that this was back at the end of 2007. So, I was first introduced to the music of the Beatles when... Me and my parents were watching this jukebox musical film, and yes, it is a jukebox musical that's based on the Beatles, called Across the Universe, named after one of the Beatles' greatest hits. And that movie gave me a treat. That was really a great movie. And as many of you all know, not only John Lennon was the only Beatle who is dead, George Harrison also died. John Lennon was murdered on December 8th, 1980, and George Harrison died from cancer on the 29th of November, 2001. If you currently listen to Mushroom FM, on Sundays from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern, as well as on Mondays from 1 to 2 a.m. Eastern, Mushroom FM carries a program which that program was from the original Westwood One. And this program is called The Lost Lennon Tapes, and it was hosted by Elliot Mintz. And on that program, not only Elliot played solo songs from John Lennon, he he also plays Beatles songs that John Lennon either wrote or co-wrote, which... As some of you may know, the majority of the John Lennon and Paul McCartney songs are credited to the Lennon-McCartney writing partnership. And if you may have read the, the show's description on the Mushroom FM schedule page, Elliot Mintz was a longtime friend of John Lennon. And in 1988, eight years after John Lennon's murder, Yoko Ono, his wife... Gave Elliot some archives that had never been released before. Yes,
0: and since then, a lot of that material has been released in other forms, but it's still a great list in the Lost Lennon tapes. Thanks, Thomas. And of course, that just goes to show the enduring legacy of the Beatles in particular. The fact that Thomas was born after both John and George had died, and people are getting into the Beatles music all the time. My children understandably all really appreciate the Beatles they all have their favorite Beatles songs and probably their favorite Beatle they were weaned on the Yellow Submarine movie they love that movie and I think we wore out the DVD the original DVD we had of Yellow Submarine because they liked it so much and I have a great niece who is a major Beatles fan who started off with songs like Yellow Submarine and I Want to Hold Your Hand and cheerful songs like that. But the thing is, the thing about the Beatles is, as you grow up, your musical tastes may change, your appetite for sophistication may change, and the Beatles can meet you as your musical interests mature.
5: This is Amy in Apache Junction, Arizona. And in 1980, I was 14 years old and in the eighth grade. And I know most people heard about it the night that it actually happened, but I didn't hear about it until the next morning while I was eating breakfast. And as soon as I heard the words, John Lennon is dead, I dropped the piece of toast I was eating. I couldn't believe my ears. And I'd always been a Beatles fan. I grew up on their music, hearing it played in my older siblings listening to it and stuff and I knew some of his solo material I really didn't know a lot about him as a person at the time and and the the truly wonderful individual that he was and the double fantasy had just come out and I loved just like starting over and I just I couldn't believe it and I don't really remember a whole lot about that day at school except just everybody talking about it, and just we were all just kind of stunned. And I remember hearing part of a program that night on 96 Rock, which was the rock station in Atlanta, and they played Hey Jude, and that was when I learned that that song was about his son Julian. And I'd always liked it, but I had a new love for the song, and it was just a weird crazy time.
6: Hi, Jonathan. This is John Jocks in Apache Junction, Arizona. And I definitely remember the day John was assassinated. I was living at my parents' house at the time. So I was in the basement where my stereo equipment was, and I had everything torn down, was rearranging things. And about midnight or so, I turned on one of my ham radios, and a friend of mine called me, and he said, I guess you've heard about John Lennon, or should I say the late John Lennon? And, of course, my response was, what? (laughs) So, anyhow, that's how I found out. And, of course, the next day I listened to our local FM station in Detroit, WABX. And it was all John, all day. And I think maybe a week later or two weeks later, they broadcast a special I don't think they produced it. I think it was produced elsewhere, called John Lennon, A Celebration. And, of course, I recorded that and have a copy of it to this day. So (laughs) that is definitely a memory I will never
7: forget.
0: Thank you, John. Yeah, I was 18 hours ahead of Eastern Time, of course, in Auckland, New Zealand. So it was the evening of the 9th of December when the news came through here. And it was just amazing. Wall to wall, John Lennon and the Beatles on the radio. Absolutely extraordinary. Tracy Duffy says, I always loved John Lennon, and when he was shot, it was as much a blow to me as if he'd been a family member or something. I can recall crying and saying, No, 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 I still miss him and wonder just what he'd have gotten up to if he had lived on. I follow both of his sons on Facebook, but it's just not the same as if he was still with us. I still love to listen to the Beatles, and I just have to say, that rock and roll just wouldn't be the same if they had never come along rebecca skipper says i'm not old enough to remember when the beatles premiered in the us but i've recently become a fan of the beatles when i read about john lennon's assassination i was angered and saddened by the senselessness of it my favorite song of john lennon's is imagine though i like the version josh groban sings better i'm a star trek fan so some of the ideas in the song make me think of Roddenberry's vision of the future. On John Lennon, Rick James writes, I first came to hear him when I Want to Hold Your Hand came on my transistor radio in 1964. Very soon, he and the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan twice in February. My schoolmates were all talking about them. Our parents were making disparaging remarks about their haircuts and said the music was noise From that time on, I was a huge fan. Their charm, their talent, and the incredible music they created. I only purchased singles at that time. I frequented the news shop in Delaware, Ohio, regularly bagging the grumpy old man who owned the place. This was the only place that sold music, along with magazines, comic books, greeting cards, and various tobacco products. The place smelled like pipe tobacco and cigars. The old man yelled at us for standing around and reading the comic books, not buying stuff or hanging out too long Had the record been In 1966, I was buying a Fender Pro Reverb amp from a guy. Yes, he was a fun guy. He had a stack of LPs lying nearby. Right up front was the Revolver album. We put it on and talked and marveled at the amazing sounds of the new record. When FM came to Central Ohio, soon there was to be a few really good shows. And with my Sony reel-to-reel machine, I was recording the Beatles, whose get-back Teddy Boy tapes were being circulated to the cool FM guys. Yes, more fun guys. I had choir practice first period at Olingani High School, When Let It Be was on WNCI, next morning I was at our high school piano at 7.30, singing it and chopping out the chords on the school piano. It was a big deal to me. Skipping ahead through the break-up and the solo Beatle years, just before John was killed, I had been over the moon about double fantasy. I just heard Woman from the album on radio and quickly got my copy— and my housemates were playing it, celebrating his return, and discussing whether or not we liked the Yoko songs. I did, some did not. But I just knew that John had broken through the silence, and I heard a new joy in his voice. I just loved it. So that just magnified my grief, like it did for millions of us fans, to have him taken from us in this cruel and insane way. I had been playing solo sit-down gigs around earning small-time money to pay for school and living wage. I could not stand it. I was just overwhelmed by the grief that someone could take out someone like that. It changed my feeling about performing and doing music. I did continue to do it, but something was robbed from us. I recently read George Martin's book, A Recent Biography on Paul, and I am looking forward to the new bio book, The Last Days of John Lennon, scheduled for release this week. I will listen to as much as I can to Mushroom FM. Thank you for your tribute show and for your shared love of the Beatles. And thanks also for Lost Lennon tapes and for asking us all to share our stories. You are a gift to us all, Jonathan. That's very kind and thank you for those heartfelt sentiments, Rick.
2: Jonathan, Mosen,
8: Mosen at large podcast. Jonathan, this is Roy in Little Rock, and I would like to talk to you about my first tape recorder and also about the Beatles. I first became aware of the Beatles in 1963 when they started playing their music in this country, and I immediately became a fan. At that time, I had a folk group, and we were singing folk music, but I was fascinated by the Beatles and I wanted to sing their music. I became aware immediately that their music was far more sophisticated than the three chord music that I was accustomed to playing. But fortunately I had an extremely gifted music teacher who had perfect pitch and he taught me the chords and what they were playing. And then I learned to make those chords on the guitar And our group began to sing Beatle music like Please Please Me and I Want to Hold Your Hand and, and Thank You Girl and Ticket to Ride and so forth. And those were quite exciting times in my life. And then two years later, I graduated and we split up and went our separate ways. And I went to college. The only source for textbooks for blind people at that time was a nonprofit organization called Recordings for the Blind, and they used volunteers, and they were very capable for the most part. I remember one time I had a reader who was reading a biology book, and right in the middle of it, she said, I'm sorry, but I just can't read that. And then she went down to another place and continued, and I will never know what it was that she wouldn't read, but they were, uh, they were very good. And the first thing that I had to do was get a tape recorder. This presented quite a problem to me because I didn't have any money and I didn't have any credit. I contacted the, the mother of a friend of mine and she was going to help me. She was a nurse, but to find out she didn't have credit either. That wasn't that uncommon back in that day and time. Lots of people didn't have credit. Her husband had credit, but she didn't have credit. So the first thing that we had to do was I had to make six trips back and forth across town from the music store to where she was working at the hospital, and she would sign the papers, and I would take them back, and then they would send another paper out and I would have to get her to sign it sometimes she would not sign in the correct places or in all the places and I had to take the paper back to her and she'd sign it again but in in, eventually I finally got my recorder it was a sony 260 four-track tape recorder I paid 255 dollars for it it cost me 18 dollars a month forever I didn't know how to use the recorder, but my friend had one. He was home from college, so he taught me how to use it, and we started playing with it. And the first thing that we did was we started making uh, chipmunk tapes. He had an Ampex recorder, and I had this Sony two sixty, and we would uh, record the parts on three and three fourths quarter speed and then speed it up to seven and a half to get the chipmunk sound. And we realized that in order to do that, you had to speak very slowly and very distinctly at the slower speed so that you could speed it up and get the chipmunk sound without uh, uh, getting the voice too fast. And we played with that and experimented with it. Then the next thing we did was we started making Beatle recordings in which we would sing the Beatle songs very slowly and distinctly on three and three-fourths and then speed them up to seven and a half. And I would love to be able to hear those tapes back then, but they don't exist. I only had two tapes. Two reels of tape. And so we recorded those tapes until we wore them out. At that time, they told me that you could splice tape with fingernail polish. Of course, I didn't have any fingernail polish, but there was a girl that uh, was a beauty contest winner at Tech at my college. And uh, I helped her with the speech. And so she loaned me her fingernail polish; she only had red, and so I used to splice the tapes with red fingernail polish and My tapes were my were quite colorful. I can tell you that was really a durable tape recorder because I used it and abused it for four years, and it worked perfectly when I graduated from college. That was about the time that the cassette recorders beca- began to come out. And I gave this reel-to-reel recorder to my sister, and she used it for a time, and she gave it to my brother, and he used it for a time, and then he gave it back to me. And I didn't really use it at then, but I had a friend who was in the radio business who had grown up with reel-to-reel recorders, and he wanted that recorder and I gave it to him, and he used that recorder up, and so that recorder lasted 40 or 50 years. And that sounds strange to believe, but it did, and it never faltered. It was the most durable device that I have ever seen. The 60s were a very turbulent time in America, and I had problems coping because I was from the South, from Arkansas, and I had to deal with such things as segregation and violence, and I remember the deaths of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. And then on top of all of that, i had to deal with john lennon's death i remember very well the day he died i had been listening to sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band which was my favorite beatle album and i had just heard uh, a day in the life and i turned on monday night football and they announced john lennon's death on the football game and I immediately turned it off and I cried. John Lennon taught me to think he was a tremendous influence in my life and his death has left a void in my life that I don't think I ever quite got over. It was like the end of something. It was like the... End of 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 my childhood. It was like the end of of free thought and expression in the world. It was sort of like a rejection of free thro- free thought, and uh, it it left a hole in my life that I've never recovered from. It was a long time before I could listen to the Beatles. But that just tells you what it meant to me. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your Beatle broadcast later on.
0: I thought it would be good to explore the social media question with you some more. Social media has so much potential for good. There is a blindness dimension to all of this, of course. Social media allows us to get together as a global community and share ideas. I started creating blindness internet radio long before social media was around with the same ideas in mind. There are certain common experiences and challenges, a thirst for knowledge about very specific blindness things that bring us together which the internet can help us solve. And I've made many valuable friendships through social media, people I probably otherwise wouldn't have gotten to know, and my life is richer for the fact that those friendships exist. But like many things we humans have created, social media has the power to be used for much good and a lot of ill. The misinformation all around us is a testimony to that. Baseless lies about elections being stolen, dangerous, potentially life-threatening malarkey regarding COVID-19, Idiotic nonsense about 5G being dangerous and even being the cause of COVID-19 and on and on it goes. Because the fundamental dilemma of social media is that anyone can be a publisher and gain a global audience. That is both a wonderful thing and frankly, a really scary thing. Now, you may say they are quite extreme examples, and I accept that case could be made, but many of us have seen how social media turns so many regular, you would think decent people when you meet them face to face into keyboard warriors who have no manners, no empathy, no compassion. And full disclosure, I'm not immune from this phenomenon either. I've posted things to social media over the years that were knee jerk and ill advised, although I like to think that my meditation and mindfulness practices have made me far less prone to doing that lately. Sometimes the best course of action is, of course, to walk away. No minds are going to be changed. Responding in kind to some barbed comment gives the commenter the reaction that they were craving. You walked into the trap that they set for you. You gave them what they wanted. But sometimes it's really not quite that straightforward. Malice, envy, defamation, the desire to take someone down a few pegs because they're far too high and mighty, they can all conspire to misinformation being posted on social media that destroys someone's reputation and that many are all too willing to accept as fact when it's patently false. A high-tech lynch mob forms, and such behavior has, sadly, led to suicides. Fortunately, in New Zealand, we're trying to do something about that. We do have anti-cyber-bullying legislation in place now, and online harassment is a crime. On the other end of the scale, there is the pointless waste of time that social media can be. People can scroll endlessly and mindlessly through posts where people try to convey to you that they're living a far more interesting, perfect life than you, or someone who's feeling isolated, lonely, lonely. Devoid of human contact and in need of attention, that they craft a post that is designed to elicit a reaction, whether it be sympathy from you or a retaliatory tweet from you just so they get the interaction. It is done deliberately to try and get you to respond so they can have their moment in the sun, their center of attention. Now, in economics, there's a principle called opportunity cost. In essence, it means that if you're doing one thing, You can't do any other thing. So when you're spending time pointlessly and mindlessly reading social media and probably not being able to remember most of what you read five minutes after you read it, you're not reading a book. You're not watching a potentially life-changing TED talk. You're not talking to any important people who may be there with you, who are so precious to you. You're not meditating. And of course, you're not working if you should be doing that. Social media is highly addictive. It's been specifically designed to be highly addictive. I've not finished it yet, but I've started watching The Social Dilemma on Netflix. It's a documentary. And if you have access to Netflix and you haven't seen it yet, I would recommend it. If you have seen it, I'd like to know what you think of it. It's a compelling summary of the dangers of social media. I first started using Twitter in 2006 I got off it for a while and came back permanently late in 2007. Overall, Twitter is my favorite social network for several reasons. First, there's a range of ways to engage. While there was a period when they tried to decapitate third party apps, and I've covered this in my podcasts over the years, there is still an ecosystem of great Twitter apps, and Twitter has become more friendly towards them again in recent times, which is great news. Second, It's possible, particularly with third-party clients, to turn off the algorithm stuff that seeks to manipulate what you see. I have a list of accounts on Twitter that I've added to my priority tweets list. I always read that list. If you're on that list, I never miss a tweet from you, and I read it in chronological order. In other words, from oldest first to the newest tweet. That way I can see life unfolding in real time. I've learned to fill that list with political and technology folks who give me quality information, friends I value highly, and I delete anyone who is constantly negative, passive-aggressive, predominantly pessimistic, or belittles others. In general, then, my little Twitter is a useful, informative, peaceful, enriching place. I've learned that by following the right people and ignoring anyone who'll bring me down, I'm getting a lot out of Twitter. I have, however, far more contempt and discomfort for Facebook. I've quit the platform a couple of times. I got back on in 2019. I'm still there for the moment. I got on for my then work reasons, but I seldom look at it now. I know Facebook has played an important part in uniting people during COVID-19. For example, a good friend of mine gave live concerts during the lockdown here in New Zealand, which was amazing. I think it's a shame though that Facebook groups have taken the place of so many email groups, which I find the email groups far more efficient to navigate and they're not subject to strange algorithms. Give me a group on groups.io over a Facebook group any day of the week, please. I looked up my reasons for exiting Facebook in 2018 in the blog post that I wrote at that time. And I thought some of that post was worth quoting here. It says in part, I must confess to always having a bit of a love-hate relationship with Facebook. I found it to be an intrusive, almost creepy social network that tries so hard to be clever that it oversteps boundaries of acceptability and propriety. Since the Cambridge Analytica story broke, I've been battling a strong urge to leave the platform. It's difficult because Facebook is addictive and they've designed it that way. Every time you get a reaction to a post, every time someone responds, it gives you a dopamine hit. In that sense, it's like a drug, and it can be hard to kick. Then there is the other thing Facebook counts on to keep you here, FOMO, fear of missing out. At a more practical level, there are people it's fun to keep track of, I mean, what will I do when I don't know about where a friend I've never met has last eaten dinner or had a scrap with their significant other? So I've waited a few weeks before deciding I really am getting off Facebook. But I feel we have a duty to punish those who have been cavalier with our personal data, who have allowed political discourse to be hijacked, and who have contempt for plain decent conduct. If we're not informed, savvy consumers with boundaries that can be overstepped, then nothing changes. The only thing these guys understand is their usage declining and their market value tanking. I'm one little person, but at least I'm being true to my values, and if lots of little people stood up to them, we can make a difference. So I am being the change I wish to see in the world. In thinking about this, I feel that Facebook has cheapened the word friend. Are there others who remember what that precious word meant before this nonsense? Friends are not things you collect, or at least they shouldn't be. Friends are people who really care about you, who are there for you when things go wrong, who'll reach out to check on how you're doing, and who you, in turn, would do anything for. And these real friends know how to get hold of me. As for news, Facebook is a dreadful, dreadful way to get it. And I'll continue to use my RSS reader, which is efficient and effective. That's some of what I posted back in 2018, before the Christchurch mosque attacks, which were streamed live on Facebook, before many other things relating to this most recent US presidential election went down. Interestingly, some reacted with claims that I was somehow obligated to be on Facebook. I can't even begin to imagine how that logic works. Fundamentally, I simply don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. In watching some of his congressional hearings, I found him either evasive or unscrupulous or incompetent. I'm not sure which. I applaud Twitter for their attempt to take greater responsibility for misinformation on their platform of lies. And also the way that they've been cracking down on harmful tweets. At one point, they were appallingly hands off regarding those subjects. So I'm glad to be brought together with people who bring me good information or joy or care and who I in turn care about. I use social media far less than I used to. The stupid little social media flare ups are a waste of the tiny amount of precious time we have on this planet. And I'm much Happier for it. When you don't get involved in those things, you're not waiting for the next push notification from someone who's firing the next salvo, and you're not in a constant state of tension, ready to fire off that next rejoinder that will show them good and proper this time. You're much, much happier. Like many things in this world, use social media for good or for ill. You have the choice, but certainly use it wisely and use it proportionately and use it as a savvy consumer.
2: Hi, Jonathan. I hope you get your voice back soon. Michael from Melbourne, Australia, just sending you a message to say thank you so much for all your help. All your advice is fantastic. Your podcasts are great. Your show's great. Everything's great. And I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and uh, nice, safe holidays ahead. I basically don't really do much with social media. I do have a Twitter account, but don't access it too often. I have Facebook for one reason, and that is basically to check in, and in years to come, it shows me the memories of where I've been. I only love that feature. The rest of it, I could easily do without.
0: Thank you, Michael, and a very Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Rebecca says, I do not like them, Sam, I am. Oh, no, no. (coughs) She says, I do not like the behavior of Facebook and Twitter, But I follow the advice that a friend gave me several years ago. Never post anything that you would not want your mother to see or that you would not say in public. I only use social media because it gives me a platform to communicate with groups I believe in.
1: Hi, Jonathan. Here is Tim Inuitveld. Regarding social media, I'm not a bird and my face is off the books. I have always avoided social media. I don't think it's worth my time. There is so much useless information on it. Like you're supposed to share, I had a beer in that pub and I went on holiday to Spain. Or I had a bowl Bowl of tomato tomato soup in that restaurant. I don't care. If I want to share my life, I will just go to the pub with my friends and chit chat there. No reason to put my personal life on the internet and spend all that time because social media takes a lot of time. And of course... If you're blind, that's more of a problem than it is for sighted people because there is such a big stream of messages that you have to read through. A sighted person can skim through the messages, but that also leads to a very superficial consumption pattern. Social media is very superficial. But if you are blind, you are forced to read hundreds of messages and it takes far too much time. There's far too much you can't follow. So for me, it's not worth the effort.
0: A few tape recorder related things to get to again this week. Here's David and he says, first, congratulations on your daughter graduating with honors in electrical engineering. Hooray! She must come by her interest and love of engineering genetically. You maybe question mark? Yes, well, very likely, or or environmentally as well. You know, what's environment? What's nature? What's nurture? Oh my word, these things occupy the brains of parents. Thank you, though, David. I appreciate that. All right, now we're going to get on to tape recorders. And David says I had a blind friend who could splice Philips cassettes. Ooh, but I'm not sure how he did it. I expect splicing the bigger reel-to-reel tapes would be more doable. A different friend told me she used a reel-to-reel in college and had found it a bit challenging at first to thread the tape onto the uptake reel. I missed that phase as I started with cassette tapes. In high school, we all recorded from the radio. I would use a jam box and record off the radio, and yes, announcers often did talk over the intro of songs. But at midnight on Sunday nights, a Baton Rouge station WFMF, played an album in its entirety with no commercials or talking. Friends often stayed up late to grab such gems as High Infidelity by REO Speedwagon. I'll just pause David's email because I've got a couple of recollections on that one that he's brought to mind. When we first got legally FM, and as I've said here repeatedly, that wasn't until 1983. Extraordinary that New Zealand was so different then. And such a technological backwater that we didn't even have FM until the mid-1980s. There was a radio station called Magic 91, and they would do this. They had a thing called the BASF 90. And for a very short time, what they did was they would publish the playlist in the newspaper and say, from Sunday at 8.30 p.m. until 10, we're going to have the BASF 90, and it's uninterrupted, and... Here's what's in it. And they would actually give you the list of songs and they wouldn't cross fade. They'd let the songs fade all the way out. It was clearly sponsored by BASF and designed for you to record it off the radio. And the record companies had a hiss it and they demanded that this be stopped. Stopped. Stop. And of course, the radio station had to comply because, you know, if you lose the cooperation of the record companies, well, they, they might stop supplying to the radio station So that came to an end pretty quickly. We also had a pirate station here in Wellington. It started off as a pirate, and then he sort of badgered the authorities into giving him some sort of weird license. It was all very strange, but he still called the station the pirate, and he ran it until his very sudden death, I think, of a heart attack. But he would do this. He'd get a new album on CD by then, of course, because I'm talking the late 1990s, mid-1990s maybe. And uh, he would say, I've got this album here, and I'm going to play it, and now I'm going to turn off all the processing. And you'd actually hear the compression and all that kind of good stuff being switched off, and you had pure signal. And then he would play the album, just let the album play with the gaps between the tracks and everything. Extraordinary. Now, back to David's email. He says, later, I'd record my vinyl albums onto cassette tapes. All my friends did likewise. That saved wear and tear on your albums. Sometimes I got stuck and had to buy the cassette version of an album. I hated that, but sometimes I'd get a ride to the record store and all they had left was the cassette. Yuck. But better than no album at all. We didn't have Napster or YouTube or Spotify then. I still have some of those commercial cassette albums, but some started squeaking and I could never get them to stop squeaking. Sometimes you could fast forward and then rewind and then they'd behave for a little while. No one could ever tell me why this happened. Well, there we go. There's a challenge to most at large listeners. Let's see if we can solve a lifelong mystery for David. Why did those pre-recorded tapes squeak and was there any way of stopping it? No pressure, no pressure. Anyway, he continues that the squeaking also happened to NLS cassettes, but I think that was because those were so often played and played. I too, like one of your callers, did not like C120 cassettes. They easily broke. Yeah, I know they were so convenient, weren't they? But boy, were they prone to breaking. Too much tape inside the cassette housing, says David. The C60s worked well, but you always had leftover space on side two, as most albums barely ran to 45 minutes, leaving some 15 minutes aside. Yeah, I do remember seeing C-45 cassettes, so 22 and a half minutes aside, and I think they were blatantly designed to record albums, but of course, every so often you got an album that didn't quite fit, and that was frustrating. At least I used to find that um, you had to record the album to find that it didn't fit. Very time-consuming. Did you know, continues David, there is a trippy British guy on YouTube who calls himself Techmoan, and then he's given me the Wikipedia entry. I have not heard of Techmoan, but apparently he does all sorts of things with old technology, among other things, and has reviewed the 8-track cartridge before. So there you go. If that sort of thing grabs you, check out Techmoan on YouTube. That's all joined together. He says, my first cassette machine was one I got for Christmas in the 1970s a mono machine, when I was about age nine. I recall the blind school having piano recitals in the spring. I played, or tried, and remember hitting a sour note in one piece called Kangarooster, and having my, quote, friends, unquote, replaying it endlessly. Ah, oh, yes, and boy, does that happen a lot now. I still have some tapes from that time, but I'm not sure how to use my Audio Technica microphone and Goldwave to put those fragile cassettes into a digital format. Maybe I need to get one of those digitizers too. Audio tech brings out the stupid in me. It's so embarrassing. I need a version of you to be nearby to help me learn. (laughs) Well, it sounds like one of those digitizers could be the trick for people who don't want to fool around with uh, cables and mixers and stuff like that. I hadn't heard of such a thing until we all started having this discussion, so it's useful. David says, yes, we were cassette snobs, Maxell and Memorex were tops. TDK was okay, and those cassette tapes that came three to a pack in a plastic bag, not an individual, plastic cases, were horrible junk. I always heard that high-speed dubbing was inferior to copying at normal speed. I know our NLS regional had a high-speed dubbing machine and the quality was often muffled. I had a heavy original APH 4-track machine too. It had a nice sound but was so heavy. The later digital model was lighter, but the digital sound sometimes bled into the setting that let you switch to the non-digital, normal play setting. That last model came out in 2000, but is now obsolete. I'm not sure if I ever saw that one, David. I did learn to speed listen, using an analog cassette player produced by NLS in the 1980s. It sounded like Mickey Mouse. It is so much easier now with digital player machines, because the pitch is not lost. I wonder if most audio engineers suffer hearing loss from working with headphones and high-pitched cue sounds. Yeah, it's an interesting question, David. Hearing deteriorates over time for many people, of course, but I know that Sir George Martin, the Beatles' famous producer, got uh, some pretty significant hearing loss to the point that he couldn't really do his work anymore. And he would often lament the state of hearing aid technology, but I think he was also actively involved with one of the manufacturers, if I'm remembering correctly. It was phonak. But yeah, it certainly would be an occupational hazard, especially if you're recording a lot of those raucous rock bands like the Beatles and the many others that George Martin recorded. Hey, Jonathan says, Kylie Maloney, just taking advantage of being on my own on a full moon in the middle of the night. Oh, my God, that sounds scary. Do you remember, she says, the genesis of your podcasting? (laughs) I think you called it Hobby Horse, but I can't be sure. I do remember, however, the interview with Roy Phillips, whom we worked with at the Easter Show in 1984. I also remember the introduction being of Felicidad by Boney M. Eh, wonderful memories as usual, says Kylie. Right, I think the music I used was an organ version of that tune by Klaus Wunderlich. I don't know whether anyone else remembers him, but he used to play all sorts of different electronic organs. I found out later, though, that he multi-tracked himself. Waha Cheat. Multi-tracking himself like that. But he made some good noises, did Klaus. And I'm pretty sure that that's where that theme tune came from. So Hobby Horse, thank goodness, not a lot of it remains. But I think the Roy Phillips interview does remain. Now, for those who don't know who Roy Phillips is, he was a member of the famous British group The Peddlers, probably their biggest hit was a thing called girly, a great track. And Roy Phillips played keyboards. He used to have a Hammond organ. I think one of those big old Hammonds with the draw bars back in the sixties. But before that he had a Lowry organ. And I think he used that Lowry organ to play Telstar, which was an instrumental by a group called the tornadoes that Roy Phillips was with. And it came out in 1962. Now, I do have that interview. I'll play you a little bit of it now. You've got to bear in mind that I recorded it when I was, I may not have quite even turned 15 years. I think I was 14. Where
9: did the peddlers form? Um,
2: 1964.
9: Uh-huh. And who did they consist of?
2: They consisted of drummer Trevor Morais, Um, He was a Liverpool drummer, and he was with the Beatles before um, um, Best, uh, I forget his first name, Pete Best, Um, before they went to Hamburg and started playing in those clubs over there in Germany. So the
9: Beatles Beatles actually sacked him?
2: No, they didn't, no. Trevor, he wanted to get out. He couldn't stand it. He wanted to get into a little bit more um, musically orientated groups. But um, I, I think he regretted it after a while.
9: I think he was. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, Pete Best had a lot of um, sour grapes.
2: Mm-mm. Yes. Mm-mm. Yes, he did. He's, uh, yes, he did, didn't he? I read something about that. Yes. And um, the other guy was a guy called Tad Martin, um, bass player who came from Yorkshire, and um, that was that was the, the other two people. There was only three, and there's always ever have been three people in the band.
10: Yes.
9: What brand of organ were you using? I was
2: using a... When I first started, I used a what they call a Lowry organ. Ah, yes. Um, because um, the Lowry people were kind enough to give me one, you see. So, and then uh, when I tipped a whole pint of beer down there, every transistor started singing from from <laughs> London to Bournemouth. So I packed up using that, and then I went on to the Big Hammonds.
9: Do you prefer playing the um, synthesised keyboard or the piano?
2: I think my first love has always been the piano, the real, the legitimate piano. Yes. Why is um, that? Well, I think it's a... An expressive instrument, and you can talk to that instrument with your hands, and it will talk back to you.
0: Oh my goodness, that is my incriminating audio passage for the year. But Roy Phillips was very gracious, and uh, his stuff is is so interesting to listen to. I haven't heard that in full for a long, long time, for reasons that I'm sure you can appreciate. Hi, Jonathan says Carol Ashland. I had quite a number of tape recorders. The one I packed around in college was a Ewer, open real machine. Yeah, I don't think anybody's mentioned Ewer yet in these discussions, and they were good machines. It records in four speeds. I still have that machine. I'm not surprised, Carol. Good stuff. She says, when I was at my parents' house, I heard a western meadow lark singing in our front yard. I grabbed the Ewer and went out into the yard and got a really good recording of that bird. At some time, I bought a Tandberg Open Reel recorder. I still have that machine as well. See, you look after your stuff, Carol. That's what you do. I took it to the university library and copied several concerts using a friend's recorder connected to my Tandberg. I have at least two of the APH recorders, but neither of them work any longer, and I don't know where to get them fixed. See, you should look after your stuff, Carol. (laughs) I also still have an APH handy cassette. It never made good recordings, though. The recordings made with the Ewer are the very best. I'm pretty sure that it was a Ewer recorder that came to my house when I was 10, sported by Mary Schnackenberg, who some people may know because she has a justifiably high profile in the blind community, particularly in Braille and library circles. She's a former president of New Zealand's consumer organisation, has done many things throughout the years that have made the lives of blind people better. And Mary was doing some reporting work, sort of stringing, they called it, for a programme on blindness called Listening Post. Actually, it may have just changed then to being called Future Indicative. So we had a blindness-specific show on our public broadcaster for a long time called Listening Post, and then they made it more generic on disability in general. But whatever the program was, she came over and interviewed me about some experimental work I was doing with Professor Leslie Kay and Dr. E.R. Strello, who was visiting from Canada, I think it was Canada, from the University of Canterbury, and we were using these sonic headbands and stuff. And Mary interviewed me for the show, and I'm pretty sure that it was a UA that she had, and I was fascinated by it.
7: Hi there, Jonathan and fellow Mosin at Large listeners. This is Daryl Hilliker in Tempe, Arizona, where it is currently 66 degrees. And I am happily recording this on my iPhone 11 with stereo microphones using the awesome Just Press Record app. And I want to talk about tape recorders and tell a little bit of a different story. So, I had a couple of the recorders that uh, people talked about. I had the Fisher Price recorder, and that was sort of fun. It was recording for me was only sort of fun. Then I had the, the ghetto blaster, which I had no idea when I was a kid, you know, how kind of pejorative a term that was, but everybody called them ghetto blasters. So, I had a GE ghetto blaster with one cassette deck, but it could record off the radio. And I had a couple of different kinds of stereos over the years since then. This is uh, 1984. And then I got one with two tape decks much later on. And I did enjoy recording off the radio. I enjoyed the ability to uh, record the songs that I liked, and then I could listen to them later. And, of course, at the time, that was really the only way to accomplish that. So to that extent, I enjoyed tape recorders. Um, however... I actually have to say that uh starting in 1987 when I got my Apple II e computer and I got my PC IBM compatible in quote PC uh not too long after that I got away from tape recorders and I never went back. I almost completely skipped CDs at least for audio listening. I listened to the radio if I wanted music and otherwise I I didn't really um I I I have to say I didn't uh I don't miss tapes. Um I really don't. I'm I just kind of uh went away from all that stuff. I still had I had ham radio and I listen would listen to the radio sometimes for music and talk radio, but uh pretty much I was much happier listening to a speech synthesizer, reading my books, even an echo speech synthesizer on the in the case of the Apple IIe, than I ever was uh listening to a human narrator. I had so much more control over the content uh that i was reading on the computer so i i skipped cds uh except that i had a cd-rom drive in my computer i never used that for recording or playing music and then when napster came out in like what 99 i think it was i was all over that that was awesome i loved napster It kind of kind of was like a rebirth of the uh recording songs off the radio, except, oh, wow, wait, I had so much more control over what I got. I learned so much more about my music and other content, uh, downloading them through the computer than I ever knew, just listening to them on the radio. Somehow, a few weeks ago, we unearthed a an old, old, old AM-FM cassette machine. And my daughter, my five-year-old daughter is sort of fascinated. Sometimes she turns it on and plays with it. And sometimes my two two and a half year old does plays with that with her, so Daddy had to sit there and actually figure out how to operate this machine again because yeah i I just don't miss it. I use Apple and Amazon music, I record into this phone, which has much better audio quality than anything I ever recorded on on cassette, and I don't miss it i I don't look back. I might be forty seven but I'm definitely. Well, entrenched into the 21st century. Oh, for
0: sure. I'd far rather be in this digital domain, rocking my little studio and the Reaper and the PC and everything than going back to those days. But in a way, I think reminiscing about these things reminds us how far we've come. At least that's the effect that it has for me. And I'm very pleased to hear that there is someone else out there who far prefers reading in TTS to audio. The one exception for me being if the author is reading their own book, say an autobiography, a political figure, someone famous, maybe a broadcaster who you've heard talk a lot. Then I'll go for their audio book. But I'm just off audio books. There's so much to read and so little time. So if you can crank it up, crank it up on your text to speech, you'll get through things a lot quicker. And I actually find it better for processing the information. So rock on, Daryl. Rock on, I say. And also thanks to everybody. It's funny how you make these little throwaway comments and they make the, the perennial lights light up in the old days when I was doing talk radio live. Um, mentioning the ghetto blaster had a lot of people getting in touch and saying, yes, all around the world, they came from and said, we used to call them ghetto blasters too. And Bonnie and I were talking about this the other day and she said, people used to have them on their shoulders. And they kind of walk around the streets, you know, playing break dancing or whatever the thing was that they were playing in the 80s. And they'd have these ghetto blaster devices on their shoulders. Imagine the damage that that would do to your hearing, because some of those, quote, ghetto blasters, unquote, as they were called then, had enormous speakers. If you had them on your shoulders, you would have been getting it loud and clear, man. And you might not be getting things loud and clear anymore. Here's Scott Edwards, who is about to answer a lifelong question for Bruce Taves. Are you ready, Bruce? Your question is about to be answered. He says, according to the instruction tape, that last jack on the right, this is on the APH machine that Bruce was referring to, was for an external speed control, which was probably for people with dexterity problems. Thank you, Scott. On behalf of Bruce Tapes, who will now be able to sleep so much better at night with that mystery solved. You're a genius, I tell you. Now, Sunil is in touch regarding what we called those tapes that weren't chrome or metal. The ones I disparagingly described last week as ordinary tapes. And he says that uh, other cassettes were ferric. That's right. Or iron, I think. Thanks so much. That does sound right. It definitely rings a bell. Here's an email from Londa Peterson, who says, Hi, Jonathan, I got my first tape recorder when I was nine. It was a Christmas present from my parents. That started all kinds of things for me, from listening to music, to making recordings, to recording the radio. When I was 10, we had a house fire. Gosh, it must have been terribly traumatic. And unfortunately, my tape recorder was lost in the fire. I remember going through a sort of withdrawal until we could replace it. I had lots of different machines, but I won't go into them all. I also got a Mr. Microphone for Christmas one year. It would send whatever you spoke into it through a radio that you tuned in to a specific frequency. I got a lot of joy playing radio DJ with that. My friend and I continued making recordings well into our young adult years, but now those machines are almost impossible to get. I wonder if that Mr. Microphone was the same thing as what we called an Andy Gibb microphone here. I wanted one of those so badly and I did get one. I think it was at the end of 1979 and it was this microphone with a telescopic antenna at the end of it and it was tuned by default to 800 kHz on the AM band and uh, I modified mine and actually managed to get it to go some some distance (laughs) and did a few things to it that i probably shouldn't have done to it Uh, but i was able to do a pretty cool radio station including a little one at the school for the blind with that andy gibb microphone and uh, then of course we got into fm cordless mics some of which sounded pretty cool oh my word what a lot of great tech memories now londa also has a really good iphone question But it's going to take me a while to answer it because I'm going to do a demo. So I'm going to treat that one separately, Londa, but I will get back to it for you. Bruce Taves has a funny tape recorder memory. He says my brother was going to take me to church later that morning. I was up early. I pulled the battery from my APH recorder so it required being plugged in to work. I found a tape from a Star Trek episode that had a wonderful woman's scream on it. And isolated it on another tape. I brought the machine into the bathroom and hid it under the sink. I plugged it into the electric razor outlet so it wouldn't be on unless the light was turned on. I went back to my room and minded my own business. Sure enough, my brother used the bathroom, preparing to leave for church. He turned the light on, and there was about two minutes worth of silence. Then the scream my brother didn't speak to me for the rest of the morning. Nicely played, Bruce. Nicely played. That does remind me of things that we used to do, to tricks that we used to do with the tape recorder. One April Fool's Day, I remember that we had a big tape recorder. It was sort of a flat one. It may well have been one of the APH ones, actually, in a desk at intermediate school. And at this intermediate school, they had an intercom, and it would make this high-pitched noise, and then... The voice of the receptionist usually would come through uh, paging the teacher or whatever. And I recorded the receptionist and the intercom sound at one point and uh, brought it home. And anyway, what we did was we hid this tape recorder in the desk playing a blank C90 tape. And so it just ran silently. For about 45 minutes, we were well into the period, and then came the intercom sound. It sounded just like the intercom, and it said, Excuse me, Mr. Johnson, in the receptionist's voice, and he said, Yes. And then this plaintive voice comes out of the speaker, Can I go to the toilet, please? Oh, boy, we were naughty. Mike Moran. He says, Hi, Jonathan. The machines you're talking about, with the compressed speech, were made by lexicon. That's interesting, because that name does not ring a bell for me. i was sure it was GE, but I may be wrong, because I must have been quite young. He says it was quite astounding when we first started messing with it. But I remember that the company was Lexicon, which, of course, is still around today, making all kinds of devices like speech compressors, EQs, reverbs, etc. Hello,
11: Jonathan. This is Roger Peterson calling from Mountain View, California. I have a couple of things to say to you. One of first one is, uh, I think it was yesterday in the uh, Mosin Explosion, you asked why there's a Pennsylvania station in New York City. Of course, the answer to that is that that whole Amtrak corridor along New York, from New York to Washington, used to be Pennsylvania Railroad, and the Pennsylvania station was owned by the Pennsylvania Railroad. Also, the, there was a hotel across from Pennsylvania station, which was called Pennsylvania Hotel and then the Statler and then the Statler Hilton and now I think it's Pennsylvania again. The 73 NFB convention was there and their phone number is still the phone number that it was when Glenn Miller wrote the song Pennsylvania 65000. My first tape recorder was not a tape recorder at all, it was a wire recorder. It was a Webster Chicago, which I believe is the predecessor of WebCore and uh, you recorded on this fine steel wire. It was on a spool, and the record playback head went up and down as it went along to spread the wire out over the spool, the width of the spool. It was recorded at two feet per second, and um, uh, when you broke the wire, if you you could get, get it straightened out and everything, you could just put a square knot in it to, tie it back together. The thing I thought was fun was when you um, when you got the, the wire so uh, twisted and messed up that you couldn't use it anymore, it was fun to put it between the terminals of an electric train transformer, turn on the voltage, and the, the wire would just go f- and vaporize immediately, leaving a little bit of ash on the counter. Uh, so um, that was my... Uh, my first, my my father got that wire recorder because he managed a furniture store, and they used to, you know, they used to sell radio phonograph combinations and so forth. And somehow he got this recorder through through them. Got a lot of 78 records too. I remember that I ended up with with a lot of them. Later on, I did move to tape in the 60s uh, in undergraduate and graduate school. And uh, my first uh, hi-fi system, I had a Sherwood stereo amplifier, the kind that, have, that had this, uh, the output va- uh, vacuum tube sticking out the back and being very hot. And I had a Sony 262D tape recorder, tape deck, which had absolutely no electronics on it. So in order to play it back, you had to have the, your amplifier... Uh, had to have a tape head input jacks. And then to record to record on it, uh, you needed a, a separate set of electronics, co- which was called a Sony SRA2, a recording, imp- recording amplifier. And when I was in graduate school, a lot of stuff got recorded on that by my then wife and the mother of my son, Larry. And uh, I had a door on, on bricks uh, in the living room, which had all this stuff on it, including the stereo amplifier and the tape decks and so on. And uh, I, I connected with that. The story was that next door to us in the graduate student departments, uh, there was a couple from New Zealand, and they had a, they had twins, who, twin girls, who were about Larry's age, which was like three or four at that time. And when they came into our apartment, they said, where's your telly? We didn't have a television set. They said, where's your telly? And Larry said, oh, we don't have a telly, but we have an apple (laughs) fire."
0: That's amazing. Thank you, Roger. And yes, the old Pennsylvania Railroad. You land on that, as I told Gino J when we were talking about this. You pay me $200 because I own all four railroads in my capacity as the world blind monopoly champion. Self-proclaimed.
2: Mosin at Large
9: Podcast. Hi Jonathan, it's Tanya Harrison here. Great show again today, but I've got so many things I wanted to comment on. It's hard to choose one or two. Firstly, the thing that I thought about listening to um, everyone talk about cassettes was I was absolutely intoxicated with the smell of certain cassettes, um, the Maxell ones that people mentioned, I love their smell, and then in the 90s, I had these Denon cassettes, and they smelt like the movie theatres, almost like popcorn, but and not quite, but they, they oh, I used to, whenever i get it out of the deck, I'd have to sniff it, because it was Oh, you could get high on that kind of thing. It was such a nice fragrance. Regarding Bluetooth keyboards, I did show you um, my keyboard which um, is quite small. Um, it is the Logitech keys to go and people often get them for their iPads but they're very thin and for that reason they don't have what a lot of people would consider really good key travel but having said that i have used mine now for three months and muscle memory really comes in handy because i use it to type for hours at a time and i can just fly along even quicker than i can on a computer keyboard so i guess with everyone hands are different so they have all the function keys all the QWERTY keys except they don't have a number pad um the keys are fairly flat but the f and j are very clearly marked as for facebook the only reason i'm still on it i very rarely go through my feed i would actually get off off it completely If Twitter would allow longer videos, um, I must admit, I like to follow the videos of the celebrities that I really love. And that is the main thing I now do on Facebook. I just prefer voice things. And that brings me to another thing about recording. And it made me think of what Tristan was saying about her awesome sound scheme. I personally wish that there was some kind of either a website or a WhatsApp group or a way of being able to share really good sound schemes with anyone that wanted to hear them. I I know there's audio boo, but I don't really know what you do with it. And I think you only can share it with certain friends. A soundscape that I did yesterday had me in stitches and for anyone that's been going through anxiety with this year's epidemic i find that laughing at an absolutely crazy sound is the best kind of way to let off a lot of nerves um i was playing with a wine glass i was actually doing my dishes and i was just running my finger around the top of the wine glass to make sure that there were no lip marks on the outside. You know, you can get this little grimy ring, and I was determined to get that off. So I was running my finger around it. I've never managed to get a wine glass to ring before, so I was really ecstatic. It's something I've wanted to know how to do for a long time. So I had to get my my recorder and record it, but then I discovered even better. Um, if you fill it up with water and you run your finger around the rim as your, as your gradually slowly tipping out the water it just makes a beautiful wowie kind of warped noise and this is when i started thinking if only there was a way of just being able to share soundscapes with people that are into funny sounds um so i don't know if there are any whatsapp groups out there where people do that i know whatsapp has the problem of people's phone numbers being visible to everybody else Um, I wish they would fix that Um, of course for people who don't want to give out the information you know there is Threema as well and I think it is a little less visible when it comes to your personal information but I just wish there were plenty of sites with video and photo sharing and that's wonderful most people want that but for those of us who just absolutely love sounds, and I'm, I'm, I must say, it's not just... I know it is a huge thing in the blind community, but I'm absolutely thrilled that over the years I have met some sighted people that are as nuts about sounds as we are. So, yeah, that—that that is just something I wish we had. Um, now, there's just one more quick thing, Jonathan. I'm sorry about the length of this message. Um, There is an iPhone bug that I have encountered or had encountered for the past three months and it was to the point where I needed sighted assistance to do quite a few basic things on my phone. So it had absolutely stirred the soup out of me. It was driving me absolutely crazy. And the other day I did the unthinkable. I was ready to do something radical. That's how much this bug was bugging the soup out of me. So I reset my phone to factory default settings. I didn't erase my phone, fortunately, but I put all the settings back to their defaults. And then I spent, it took me 10 hours to switch on different settings and change things before I found out what caused the bug. The bug is when you're in certain share sheets, the mail app, Facebook, places where there's lots of photos, any any kind of thing where there's a lot of changing information you're trying to sit on one thing and voice over will keep jumping from one thing back to the other to the other back to the other and it was horrible so for anyone that's encountered this bug if you're still getting it you go into settings accessibility keyboards then you just swipe past the top heading which is hardware keyboards. Then you, you there's a checkbox, you turn it off for allow full keyboard access. When you've got that turned off, that bug mercifully disappears. I phoned Apple, I spoke with someone at Accessibility who said, thank you very much, we have known about this bug for some time, we know you reported it, along with others, and we actually knew about it, but we didn't know what caused it. So for anyone who has encountered that, I hope that this helps. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for your show.
0: Well, thank you for your contribution, Tanya, which was voluminous, voluminous. Where does one begin with all that stuff? First, I don't know why, but there has been an increase in recent times of blind people enabling this full keyboard access. And I don't know where it came from, but it isn't a good idea because I don't know whether this is a bug or not. Possibly it is. But you can understand why full keyboard access could potentially conflict with voiceover. And the reason for that is that voiceover has its own keyboard commands. So I suppose if you turn QuickNav off and just use the arrow keys, it should be able to coexist. But yes, anybody who has full keyboard access enabled on their iPhones or iPads and is experiencing problems, turn it off, you might find that many of the problems magically go away. It is amazing how many people I've said to. Try turning off full keyboard access and magically problems disappear. Squee. In terms of Twitter and long videos, if you don't have it, you might like to download its companion app called Periscope. Periscope is how I get a lot of my breaking news. You can follow people on Periscope. Generally, it is linked to Twitter. And when they go live... You can see it, and if you don't have time to look at them when they're live, you can go into the Periscope app, which is pretty accessible, and then go back and look at the archives of their videos. Periscope is a great app, and particularly during election times and things like that, I get so much good information from Periscope. Periscope also has an audio-only mode, so it is possible for blind people to go live with Periscope, If you're uncomfortable with having the camera on, turn the camera off and you can stream live. You can even bring guests in. It really is quite a cool app. I don't use WhatsApp groups except for internal things like Mushroom FM because I don't want my cell phone number out there. It's something I feel quite strongly about, although the audio quality of WhatsApp is very good. But it's a shame that Zello's uptake seems to have really dwindled away in the blind community. Zello is a walkie talkie app you can set up groups on Zello or channels on Zello without disclosing email addresses or phone numbers and the quality is great and they also have a PC version I'm not sure if he's keeping them current but last I checked Doug Lee does have a set of Zello scripts for JAWS it's spelled Z-E-L-L-O like hello but with a Z and it is a really good app we did have a Blind Phones Zello group for a while where we talked about phones on Zello and it was really well done. People were able to contribute on iOS, Android and their PC. So if you haven't checked out Zello, it's a really good app and they are aware of accessibility. There are a couple of other apps that are trying to get into the audio only space. One is called Stereo. And I haven't had a chance to check this out too much, but the idea is that you do talks on stereo, and then you can send them to YouTube as well. I think you can possibly podcast them, make them available on demand. And there's a new thing in beta called Verbal, which is about V-U-R-B-L. And you can go to Verbal.com and check that out. When I did, I saw some accessibility problems, but it purports to be, or, or wants to be, the YouTube of audio. So, you might want to check that out as well. Audio Boom, it used to be called Audio Boo, used to be like a social network for audio. And a lot of blind people loved it because you could just get on there and rant and talk, and people could follow you in the app. And it was really good. But they've completely changed their reason for being now. And they're essentially a podcast platform now. I guess they had some trouble monetizing the old Audio Boo. So a lot of those old features have gone, and now they're just a good old podcast hosting type platform. Your story about the wine glasses made me laugh, Tanya, because it brings back a very happy memory for me, and that was that when Amanda and I started going out in 1987, I think it was early 1988, I said to Amanda, would you like to have some friends of mine, all of them blind, over at your place? Because she was actually living in her mum's house then. So there was lots of room. Her mum was living elsewhere. (laughs) So we had this little dinner party and a number of blind people came over, all of whom were musically inclined. And we had wine. And of course, what do all these blind people do? They start making the wine glasses ring. And of course, playing with the pitch by adjusting the amount of liquid that was in the glass. And I don't think Amanda know what the heck she was dealing with. That was her introduction to blind people (laughs) who enjoy making sounds from interesting things. So that's a great old story, a a very pleasant memory for me. And she still talks about how she invited a bunch of blind people over. And the first thing they did was to try and make her wine glasses sing.
12: Hi, Jonathan, this is Shirley. Um, You were talking about Bluetooth keyboards If um, the person looking for one knows Braille uh, and is comfortable writing Braille, I just recently got the Orbit Writer, and I'm just learning it, so I can't talk a lot about it yet, but it does give you Braille keyboard entry. It's certainly um, less expensive than the Revo 2 unless they've lowered their price a lot, um, on the Revo 2, uh, and I think it's certainly a lot more user-friendly. I have read about the Revo 2. I've had one in my hand. Um, haven't really used it very much, but I do know you've got a couple ways of entering uh, things on that Revo 2 from the keypad, but, you know, like I said, if uh, if it's some a person that likes to write in Braille, I would certainly be looking at that Orbit Writer. It's $99, and um, it's a fairly small device, and uh, it pairs pretty easily. I did get some help with getting it paired, but it pairs pretty easily and will stay paired. You can pair it, I think, to five Bluetooth devices and one USB device. Thank you very much, and um, I hope you're all having a good weekend. I know you don't celebrate Thanksgiving um, in New Zealand, but uh, I'm curious if you did anything uh, at all for it, you know, since obviously Bonnie is from the United States, so maybe you can share that with us.
0: Thanks, Shirley. I like the sound of your landline phone, I must say. I wonder what the brand is, but it sounds very pristine, really good for a landline. And thank you. That message came through, of course, the weekend after Thanksgiving, we're just running it now. We did not do anything Thanksgiving related, and the reason for that is that Bonnie had the lurgy, she had the lurgy big time, so she really didn't feel like anything elaborate in terms of food. We have done Thanksgiving in the past and had uh, turkey and that kind of thing, and as I've said before, pumpkin pie is so unusual in this country that that's a bit of a treat, although I've really gone off the carby thing, so I'm not sure if we would have had that had we celebrated Thanksgiving this year or not. But we'll probably get back to celebrating it next year. It's a fun thing to do. Hope you and Lynn had a good one. Here's Luis Pena. He says, Hi Jonathan, after I listened to your review of the Samsung TV 8500, I decided to buy this TV, but this one is larger, 65 inches. (laughs) Unfortunately, accessibility is only available in English. And since my wife uses this TV too, I can't enable accessibility. But this is not a big deal, since I usually watch TV with her. I am very pleased with this TV. By the way, Bixby works very well with this TV. Unfortunately, the soup drinker is not available in Colombia, and I have been quite lazy to figure out the way to make it work here. I also got a Sonos Beam soundbar a few months ago. I haven't been able to play TV content through all my living room Sonos speakers, Sonos Play 5, unless I do it through my Apple TV, and this process is rather difficult to perform. Could you please tell me what steps should I follow so I can play my TV through my Sonos speakers without having to use the Apple TV? By the way, I got a Sony TV a couple of years ago after I listened to your review of this TV. <laughs> I need to set up affiliate links. Unfortunately, when we switched to internet providers, this TV stopped playing YouTube. Apparently, the model I got has some connectivity issues with the fiber that we got from our internet provider, and after many attempts at solving the problem, I gave it away to a close friend of mine. Thanks, Luis. I'm glad you got the TV you like. We really like our Samsung TV as well. It is serving us very well. Now, if I understand your setup, you have a Sonos beam and it's connected to your TV and you are, I think, getting sound from the Sonos beam from your TV, right? So assuming all that's working and you've got a cable going from the HDMI Port of your Sonos beam into the HDMI arc port of your Samsung TV, the audio return channel, and you are hearing the TV sound not on the speaker of your Samsung TV, but on the Sonos beam itself. Then all you need to do is go into the Sonos app on your iPhone and group the rooms. So you go into, assuming you're using the latest Sonos app, the system tab. You will see all your Sonos speakers there, and you'll find your Sonos Beam in there playing TV. You choose the Select Room button, and then you will see all your other Play 5 devices there. Just double-tap to select each one so that they're all grouped together, and you'll be up and running. That does, of course, presuppose that you've got the Beam talking to the TV, which I presume you have, because otherwise there's really not much point in having the beam.
13: Hey, Jonathan, it's Geordie Howe from Melbourne, Australia, recording in for the first time for the Mosin at Large podcast. How are you going? I have just really, I've been in stitches over your story about the lost cable. (laughs) Uh, Because how many times have I done that sort of stuff? I have searched my house high and low for something, only to remember, that's it, I remember where it is, hours later or days later sometimes. And so I wanted to tell you that you were saying that when you were little, you used to dream of a land where all lost things go. Well, there's a book by a beautiful Irish author called Cecilia Ahern, A-H-E-R-N, who writes about this place where all these things turn up when they go missing, even people sometimes. And the book is called A Place Called Here. It's narrated by a lovely Irish lady called Aoife McMahon, and it's available on Audible. So I just thought I would let your... Listeners know about this awesome book. It's one I reread again and again every so often.
0: Howard Goldstein has some thoughts on Windows notifications. He says, hi, Jonathan and all. On the November 28th show, someone mentioned that Nick Zamadelli actually having difficulty responding to a Windows notification. Here are some suggestions. When a notification pops up on screen, it may or may not also be placed in Notification Center, depending on how it's configured. For this reason, it's better to respond directly to the notification when it first occurs. The Windows keystroke for doing this is Windows key plus shift plus B. But the problem is that by default, Windows only gives you about five seconds to press the key before the notification disappears. Not to worry though, because it's very easy to change the amount of time that a notification remains on screen go to ease of access settings by pressing Windows key plus U. Now tab several times until you reach a combo box called show notifications for and adjust it as desired. I found this information in one of David Bale's excellent guides and the URL for this is vip.chowo.co.uk. So that's u-k Thanks Howard I haven't heard of that resource before but it sounds like a good one and that's a great couple of tips there thanks for sharing that Aaron Linton writes could you explain how your audio interface and mixer are set up I've got a BS Oh really Oh I see I think that stands for Bachelor of Science right in music with a concentration in audio production and have been thinking about your setup. I've been trying to figure out how you have your various news sources and other external devices going through your interface and then your mixer. Do you have the software set up for different websites through different fader settings? Then do you dial the gain on the interface, keep it set, then just use your faders on the mixer to move channel volumes up and down. If not, how do you use your mixer by itself to grab all that audio and not get overloaded with a bunch of audio sources at once? I'm looking at doing this myself and wanting to get ideas. Yes, the audio interface Aaron has two sets of stereo outputs that I'm making use of. And also, there is another USB interface that is built into the mixer. So there are three separate stereo interfaces. And with that, if you have three browsers open, say Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and Firefox, you can then use the Windows Mixer to route an application to a specific output. So that takes care of three sources that you can then ride the faders on. I then often use my iPhone, my iPad, and also my soup drinker and Google Home if necessary. So there's four more. By the time you get to seven sources running at once, even if you're riding the faders, you know, you've probably done your dash, I think. So I can do a maximum of seven really without breaking a sweat in the studio because all those devices are connected to the mixer anyway. So I hope that makes sense. Now, Aaron's also talking about social media. He says the reason for Facebook, I'd get rid of the app and even Twitter if I didn't have family and friends on both platforms. I keep track of work-related industry pages on Facebook and communicate with other recruiters and headhunters through FB. I'm also an admin for a few different groups as well. I rarely post or get on myself. I feel that ethically, regardless of where you stand politically, these platforms shouldn't be saying to us, hey, this is COVID or election-related, are you sure you want to post this? FB and Twitter are platforms, as stated by their CEOs. If that's the case, then stop telling us to think twice about what I'm posting. If they are going to do that, then they need to be regulated, in my opinion. In regards to accessibility in Facebook, People need to understand that when we give mainstream companies control of accessibility, regardless if it's visual or not, we allow them to monetize the visually impaired population even further. Their first priority isn't accessibility at all. Even big companies like LinkedIn only show lip service to accessibility. When accessibility isn't either built in or brought from the higher ups down, accessibility does not work at all, even if the company has an accessibility page just to please stakeholders and newsrooms. Thanks, Aaron. I think LinkedIn is probably your best bet in terms of professional connections, and I definitely see the value in LinkedIn. One of my pet peeves with LinkedIn is how many swipes it takes in the iOS app to get anything done, to move from one story to the next. And I actually wrote a post on LinkedIn on this very subject, how As a chief executive, I kind of feel some obligation to be on LinkedIn, and actually what I find on LinkedIn, I really do find very helpful, but the utility is somewhat diminished by all that flicking you have to do to get through stories. It is an unwieldy user interface, and uh, somebody from LinkedIn got back to me and said they know, they acknowledge this, and they were working on a brand new, more streamlined accessibility experience. That was some time ago. And unfortunately, it is yet to materialize. And that's really unfortunate, particularly given that LinkedIn is a Microsoft property and Microsoft has been doing a lot of good in the accessibility space of late. More Apple feedback, as you would expect on this show. Hi, Jonathan, it's Douglas from Ontario, Canada. I have an iPhone 11 Pro Max and I've noticed significant problems with iOS 14. When it comes to voiceover, trying to read or tap on items, voiceover keeps clicking or jumping around the screen. I've reported it to Apple Accessibility and sent them a little video clip. But surprisingly and sadly, the problem still has not been resolved. Thanks, Douglas. My guess would be that this is related to the full keyboard access setting that we have talked about on this show. So if you have at any point gone in to accessibility settings and turned on the full keyboard access, if you turn it off, you might find that all your problems disappear.
14: Hi, Jonathan and everyone. I am recording this voice memo on a brand new iPhone 12 mini. Yes, I decided I was sick and tired of great big humongous phones and that I wanted something reasonably small. So I opted for the iPhone 12 mini after having my original SE for five and a half years. Of course, it was time for a new phone, so here we are. It's very nice in terms of size. It reminds me of the the iPhone five S, which was the first phone I ever had. It's that size, and it is nice and small and easy to handle. I bought the transparent case so that people can still see the red color. And it has, uh, the the edges of the case have ridges along them, as well as the back to make uh, gripping the case very easy. Uh, It's a great phone. I didn't need all the LiDAR features, whatever, so I opted for this 12 mini. There is a feature that I discovered that I think that perhaps many blind people don't know either that it exists or that it can be done with an iPhone. And I discovered how to do it. And what I'm talking about is the merge call feature. What you have to do at the bottom of the number pad screen is a hide button, and to the right of that, an end call button. So first, you press the hide button. It makes the number pad go away, replaced by another screen. And on this screen, there are a few options, like mute, where you can mute the microphone. speaker is on that screen. And add call. So if you've made a a call to someone, you hit the hide button and you will get this screen and you then press the add call button. And you will then get the usual number pad and choose a contact and you do this and then it returns you to that screen and you then see the merge button and you can then merge the two calls. I was thrilled to discover that this existed, not that I use it a whole lot, but since it is there, I think that people should know about it and I thought that many blind people would
0: thanks so much, Sam. It's a really cool feature. The old merge call and holding a three way conference call with your iPhone. I do this a bit, and people should know that it is possible for this feature to be disabled by their carrier. so if Sam's very clear instructions don't work for you, it could be that the plan that you're on does not have this feature active. I know this because my kids are on prepay and I'm on a monthly account. And they don't have this feature. I tried to instruct them on how to get everybody together so we could have a little conversation and they can't do it. But Bonnie and I, who have monthly accounts with our carrier, we can. So clearly it is disableable, if that's such a word, on various accounts. Really glad that you got the mini. It's getting rave reviews, actually. Rave reviews. People do say, of course, be mindful that with a smaller battery, you're going to get poorer battery life but people love the form factor. They love the size of the thing. Glad it's working out for you, Sam. And thanks for sharing the experience. We go to Graham Smith now, who says, Hi, Jonathan, I have listened to you for many years. Ah, that'll explain the gray hairs I see, Graham. (laughs) And really enjoy your podcast, etc. Thank you so much. He says, do you know you are probably one of the only guys that never uses the word um or such like between sentences? Great stuff. Well, one tries, and a bit of the old Toastmasters helps immeasurably. Now, Graham continues, enough of that, quite right. Here is my issue with Apple Music. I believe this started happening a couple of years ago when iTunes changed to music. So from the menu where you wish to select from artists, album, genre, etc., I used to be able to select artist And then, on my Windows laptop, press F6 to enter the artist table, where I could, and still can, arrow down through my artists. On arrowing on a desired artist, I press F6 again to view the albums within that artist, and this is where the issue is. I am told how many artists there are, but alas, you cannot arrow down through the albums to select the required album without arrowing through every track within every album. I used to be able to arrow through the list to the desired album and then press F6 to be within that album and its tracks. I hope this makes sense and wonder if you would have time to try it and see if you have the same issue. I have reported this to Apple a couple of times over the last two years and the issue has been recognized and promised to be sent to the developers or whomever deals with these things. As far as I am aware, Nothing has ever been done about it. I am really surprised I have never seen or heard of anyone else referring to this within the few lists I am on. Just out of interest, it is exactly the same on my MacBook Air updated to Big Sur. I used the Mac for a couple of years, but I must say I prefer my Windows laptop. Thanks so much, Graham. And I'm not going to be of much help here because I personally find iTunes incredibly convoluted to listen to music with. And that is why I use either Sonos on my iPhone and just play music on my Sonos devices with the Sonos app or any number of music apps on my phone, be it Apple Music or Spotify. I don't use iTunes for music at all. In fact, the only reason why. I have iTunes consuming valuable real estate on my PC is to make encrypted backups of my iPhone. That is the only thing that I use it for. And in having a look at this just briefly, I think I see what you mean, but I don't know whether that's just the fact that I don't know how to use iTunes anymore because it's been so long since I used it. So what you want to be able to do, as I understand it, is type in an artist name and then be able to drill through a list of albums from that artist and then go down to the tracks once you've chosen the album you want. Now I can do that literally with my eyes closed on my phone. I'm not sure how to get it done anymore on the PC. So if anybody would like to contribute to their iTunes expertise or perhaps confirm Graham's findings, please do let us know and educate us all.
15: Hey Jonathan, this is Peggy Kern. Just dawned on me that I never updated you guys as my, as far as my watch uh, issue, or I should say now, former issue. As for those who don't know, I was having for several Help, weeks... let me out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Smart aleck, Dan. Anyway, for those who don't remember, <laughs> I was having a problem where my watch information wasn't transferring to the phone and uh, involved me calling Apple and unpairing and repairing the watch which didn't do anything except make me lose my wonderful move goal and so then I looked online and found that they suggested not only unpairing and repairing but also resetting the phone so I did all that and that made things a little better it would eventually update um, but it would still sometimes it would do it pretty regularly and other times it would just not update for a day or two and then dump everything in. So I thought, oh no, what's going on? But then just suddenly, I think it was about right before 14.1 came out, it just started working. And it's been working beautifully ever since. It's been working like it used to. So I don't know. I think Apple knew that there was something, some kind of bug and they must have figured it out and gotten it fixed. So It worked, you know, from 14.1, 14.2 on my old phone and still on my new phone, and it's wonderful. So I am very happy about that. And then as far as the email uh, situation, I told you guys last week that I had email where when I got the new phone, a lot of stuff that had been deleted came popping back into my inbox, and you thought it maybe was a Gmail problem, Dan has a gmail account and it does it for his account i have a gmail and a comcast account my gmail account works perfectly it doesn't do that with that but my comcast account was the one that was doing it for me so what i finally did was just did a uh, selected everything in the inbox And put it into the deleted folder, then went in and selected everything in the deleted folder and actually deleted it from there. So hopefully if I ever have to restore or when I get a new phone in a few years, that will have solved my problem. I don't know if Dan's problem has been solved or not. But anyway, so those are the updates on the watch and mail situation. And looking forward to listening to the show.
0: Well, I'm glad it's resolved, of course, Peggy. But now I am curious. I wonder how you have your Comcast email configured, whether it's POP3 or IMAP. Because if IMAP's behaving properly, and IMAP is definitely preferable to POP3, it really shouldn't be doing that. But I'm glad you've got it resolved, and hopefully it will stay that way. And brilliant about the watch, too. But uh, I guess you will never get that long move streak back which is a bit heartbreaking, but a first world problem too. I have an email here from Paul Hopewell. I know this because it says right at the beginning of the email, Hi, Jonathan, this is Paul Hopewell from Chandler's Ford near Southampton in the UK. See, conclusive proof that it is Paul Hopewell. And he continues, I much enjoy your podcast and am thinking that a good future topic would be how listeners use their Apple Watch. After years of faithful service, my quality Braille watch has failed and I cannot find another of similar quality, so I have purchased an Apple Watch SE, which I have now owned for about a week. As I do not want to disturb others, I want to use my Apple Watch in silent mode with VoiceOver off as much as possible, particularly at night. To that end, I have gotten haptic time to usually work with the watch in silent mode, and voiceover off alas, it does not always work, and I would be delighted to know of any technique which always works, in addition to using the watch for telling the time. I have found haptic alarms very useful and am also impressed with all the health data the watch collects, which I can view in the health app on my iPhone, however. I am unlikely to use email or maps or music or audiobooks or podcasts on my watch, as these are all available and easy to use on my iPhone, which is always with me. I would thus like to know what others do with their Apple Watch, particularly if they also have an iPhone. In addition to blindness, I also have significant hearing loss, which is fixed with behind-the-ear hearing aids. When I use voiceover on my iPhone, I use stereo music hooks, which plug into my iPhone via an adapter and which fit beside my hearing aids to use their induction loop interface. That's an interesting approach, Paul. I can thus listen to my iPhone without disturbing others. These cannot work with the Apple Watch but I do also have a Bluetooth-connected induction neck loop, which I could probably use to silently connect my Apple Watch to my hearing aids. But why might I want to do that? Many thanks, says Paul, and keep up the great work on the podcast. Well, thank you for writing in, Paul. I appreciate that. Congratulations on the new shiny. Always good to have a new shiny, eh? I am with you. I have made for iPhone hearing aids. So my iPhone does speak to the hearing aids directly. Sadly, the Apple Watch at this point does not. Interestingly, there was the user interface for it briefly during the beta cycle of WatchOS 7, and then it went away. And I suspect that they are working on it, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet. So I am encouraged by that, but I'm also nervous about it because I, as I've said on several occasions now, cannot get my hearing aids to hand off cleanly, seamlessly between my iPhone and my iPad, which basically means my iPad has now turned into an expensive paper weight, thanks to MFI hearing aids and handover or handoff or whatever they want to call it, not working correctly. So I'm worried that when it eventually does come to the Apple Watch, I'm going to have the same problem. I do have the Apple Watch cellular. And what I do sometimes is I take my Oticon Connect clip And use it with my cellular Apple Watch. This is a Bluetooth streamer type device. So it will pair with the Apple Watch via Bluetooth. And I actually get pretty good stereo sound through it. And that means sometimes that say if I'm charging my phone or it's just not convenient to carry the phone, I've got the watch on my wrist. I can get text messaging done. I can keep tabs on things and I can listen to Mushroom FM or playlists. The Apple Watch cellular does stream from music services. So I do use it very occasionally, but not a lot. My predominant use of the Apple Watch is for health data, for quickly getting some text messaging done, uh, tracking my water intake and logging my water intake. I use that quite a bit. I have just pressed record on it. Although I have to say that now I'm knocking on the wood. I've got my Apple Watch battery under control again, but it could possibly be an artifact of the current beta cycle I cannot load third-party apps onto my Apple Watch at the moment. At first, I tried doing it with the normal method I use, which is to select the apps I want on my iPhone and then wait for them to come across. They never do. It flicks over briefly to downloading and then stops, and the app never makes it to the watch. So then I really do like just press record on my watch, so I went in and I tried to download it directly from the WatchOS App Store. I can't do that either. I don't. I'm going to have to wait until watch OS seven point. Is it two? We're up to now goes golden, and then um, you know if it's not resolved by then, try to fix it possibly by resetting everything again. Oh god! And then I'll probably get the battery life problems back. So uh, the taptic time is a bit hit and miss. I found that I don't turn voiceover off by the way because voiceover only talks if you make it talk. If you're finding voiceover is too chatty and talking when you don't want it to be talking, it sounds like you might want to adjust your settings. The first thing I would recommend is that you turn off wake on wrist raise, because often if you're just walking around and you lift your wrist, voiceover starts to speak the time that's incredibly inconvenient. But there shouldn't really in the normal course of events be a reason to silence voiceover because it only should be speaking when it's spoken to as it were. So I just triple tap usually the watch face, and sometimes that does what it's actually designed to do and only give me the minutes, but sometimes it gives me the hour and the minutes. And if I double tap the watch face, sometimes it talks, which I don't want it to. I'll never forget being in a funeral, double tapping to see what the time was right during a quiet bit, and the watch blurted out the time. Um That was a time when you could not turn speech off on voiceover. Voiceover had to be either on or off, so lesson learned, but it's a good topic, Paul. I would also like to hear from others about how they use their Apple Watch, what functions they find work particularly well on the watch, what difference it's making. It is really heartening. It's cool to see these stories about Apple Watch literally saving lives with people getting hard notifications and that kind of stuff. In other Apple news, I did want to draw to people's attention that Apple has now delivered on something that they promised would be occurring during the iOS 14 cycle. And that is family sharing is now possible for subscriptions. This is a great thing. Ulysses, my favorite little word processor app on my iThing, has already jumped on board with this at the moment. Bonnie and I both have a Ulysses subscription, but we're also obviously part of our family sharing group. Now, One of us can cancel our Ulysses subscription because it is available to all family sharing subscribers. So it is optional whether the developer chooses to adopt this or not. Good on Ulysses for doing it. It's the right thing. I hope many other developers will do the same with their subscriptions. And finally, while we're talking about significant Apple news, Apple has unveiled its new accessibility website If you would like to check it out, you can go to apple.com slash accessibility and it's all there. I have not done that yet, but I have received good feedback on Twitter about this and that it seems to be a very positive redesign. So go and check it out. You may find some resources that will assist you. Apple.com slash accessibility. There are a few things that come together for this next segment of the podcast. So bear with me while I give you a bit of background. I like to stay current with podcasting. And so I read a lot about innovations that are taking place in the podcast space, and I try them out. And a while ago, I found out about technology called Descript. And the idea is that you essentially edit your podcast in the same way that you might edit a Word document. Let's say, that I am doing a piece on my podcasting history and I say, I've been podcasting for 14 years and then I do a double take after I've finished recording. And I think, oh man, it's actually 16 years now. I started in 2004. I've sold myself short by two years. What I'd normally do is just re-record that little snippet and insert it into the right place in the file. With Descript, though, you've got everything loaded in And you simply change the text. So you're dealing with a transcript of your podcast. And when you see an error like that, you just delete the words and you type in the replacement. And using essentially what is like deep fake type technology, they can have your voice saying what you want just by typing it in. Now, I haven't had much of a chance to hear this in action. And I haven't tried it myself because last time I checked anyway, which was a few months ago, Descript is not accessible, but it's a really intriguing concept. So let's fast forward or rewind, depending on how you you view it, to the moon landing back in 1969. I've always been fascinated by space and the achievement that was the moon landing. And if you've listened to various internet radio shows I've done over the years, you will know this. We did a big thing on the 45th anniversary of the moon landing, and then again, on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, which was only just last year. When I was researching for the 45th anniversary of the moon landing, I came across a Nixon speech that was never given, and it was chilling. Nixon's speechwriter had produced a speech for the president to read in the event that something went wrong, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were stranded on the moon. Perhaps they crash landed, and there was just not the technology to rescue them. And they knew this when they took on the Apollo project. They had a lot of confidence in the NASA engineering that went into the moon landing, but they also knew there was a possibility that they would not make it home. And so, just in case a speech like that was needed, it was written ready for Nixon to deliver should the need arise. And of course, thankfully, No need arose. But I read this speech, and at the time, I read it, I believe, on the moon landing special that we did for the 45th anniversary. Now fast forward again to a new podcast that I've started listening to, and I highly recommend it. It's called Brave New Planet. And the thesis behind Brave New Planet is looking at technology that has the potential to do all sorts of wonderful things but also has the potential to be used for ill. And essentially, it's up to humankind to decide what we do. And as part of Brave New Planet, I believe it was the first episode. It was certainly the first in the series that I heard. They did an episode that goes for about 80 minutes on deep fakes. If you're not familiar with this term, this is where it is now possible to manipulate audio and video digitally so well that unless you're really attuned to it or you're paying particular attention, you can't tell that the events you're hearing never actually happened. Now, in this episode about deep fakes, I learned about a project from MIT, which was designed specifically to demonstrate how far deepfake technology had come. And if you're interested in precisely how they did this, then I highly recommend taking a listen to Brave New Planet and the episode on deepfakes, because they go into quite a bit of detail about how they got an actor and how they got all these digital samples of Nixon's voice and how they made this happen. But essentially, they put together an alternative history sequence where the eagle crash lands. And it's quite conceivable that that may have happened, of course, because right before the landing, there were 1202 and 1201 alerts And Armstrong was very close to running out of fuel without finding a suitable place to land. So it was a really close run thing. It's conceivable that the story could have ended very differently. And then they go in to the Nixon speech. My understanding is that the visuals, which I can't obviously directly comment on, are really impressive. As blind listeners, we are probably one of the most critical audiences for deciphering deep fake because we're really attuned to listening carefully. We're used to text to speech, which these days is of course made up of a lot of digital samples. So I can certainly hear that this is a deep fake, but wow, you know, it's getting pretty close and the technology is likely to improve. So what I will do now is play you the MIT deep fake of a speech that was written for Richard Nixon to deliver, but was never delivered by him. But it sounds like Richard Nixon did indeed deliver. This creates an alternative history in a fairly compelling, fairly believable way. Have a listen. Good
16: evening, my fellow Americans. Fates has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man in ancient days men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations in modern times we do much the same but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood others will follow and surely find their way home Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Good night.
0: It's a beautiful speech, isn't it? And as Pontius Pilate allegedly said, what is truth? That deep fake technology is pretty scary stuff. Alan Hillpod is writing in on a subject that we've talked about at length here on the show, but it seems to have died a natural death, which surprises me. Anyway, I'll come back to that. Alan says, I have to tell you that it is not just English stations which have been removed from Tunin. He's obviously in the UK. Some very popular Spanish, French and German stations, which I used to listen to, have gone, as well as Talk Radio Europe, which is a station broadcasting in English for expats from Spain and which carries the BBC World Service when the normal English output is off the air. With the exception of Talk Radio Europe just mentioned, I would not describe the output of the other stations as music stations, with the odd bit of music from time to time and stacks of them in many other foreign languages are now no longer available to us in the United Kingdom. I wonder if Spanish residents using Tunin cannot get our English stations, or is it just Brits who have to suffer this loss? Thanks for getting in touch, Alan. Yes, it is just Brits who have to suffer this loss. It is the result of a court case in the United Kingdom, and you can go back through the at large archives where I gave a very detailed explanation of why this has happened. And the reason why it's also affecting talk stations is basically because TuneIn does not want to be responsible for being the arbiters on this matter. They don't want to have to say, oh yeah, this station never, ever, ever plays any music, so we'll let it through, because the moment that it did play a piece of music, perhaps in the context even of a news story or there's some emergency and they need to put a record on, on, how quaint am I? Uh, Then they would be in breach of the court case by having it stream inside the UK. So what they've said is that it doesn't matter the language. It doesn't matter where it's from. If you are in the UK, you can only listen to radio stations within the UK on tune in. Now, coming back to the original point that I made at the beginning of this, I'm absolutely amazed that there has been so little comment on this. It could be because I'm just reading too many American-centric news publications, but I've seen next to no mention of this tune-in issue for months, and I guess that I was expecting that there'd be this massive rebellion, that people in the UK would have said, this is just outrageous what you're doing, treating us so differently from the rest of the world, and part of it could be because of the coronavirus and people are thinking about bigger things. But in a way, the coronavirus makes the point that TuneIn is such a valuable app for so many people because it connects people with entertainment from around the world. I guess one of the reasons why it could be a little bit of a fizzer in a UK context is that the media landscape in the UK is just so rich. You've got the BBC putting out a great output of content Uh, so maybe people don't care as much and also of course there are other apps i mean you can download any number of other apps for your iphone go to web directories that are not affected by this court case and get those stations by other means but it still is curious to me that this has gone under the radar to the extent that it appears to have And now, making some semblance of recovery from being stricken stricken, we are back with the Bonnie Bulletin with the fumbling microphone Bonnie Mosin. Well
10: it was pointed down. How oh, were some you? Were it you? was,
0: yeah. Yeah, well welcome. So where do we start this week?
10: Um, I guess we can start about tapes. Someone was talking about the squeak on the tapes, and that was so annoying.
0: Oh, do you know but, what causes that? No, oh.
10: I I don't. But I know that the NLS tapes would do it, and that would make me so angry. That's the ones I usually had the trouble with. You'd start reading a book, and it would go. Rrr, rrr, rrr. Sometimes moving the tape recorder would help, or hitting the tape recorder. But I think I guess hitting the tape recorder, I would tap it, yeah, and it would stop. <laughs> But I think a lot of it was probably because it had been played a lot. Yes. Maybe, and the tape was running thin. Yes.
0: Perhaps. And especially people like me who used to try and DJ with tape decks, which wasn't always easy. And you <laughs> sort of wind the tape back and forward, back and forward. And... All right. What's next?
10: Um, I guess John Lennon. I was listening to either, I forget now, Ring Radio or WSB out of Atlanta. And I would listen to them at night because I was trouble sleeping with the non 24, which they didn't know what it was then and was just children staying up too late. And I remember the breaking news story. It was CBS affiliate and, um, it was one of their, their New York reporters that was reporting live outside the Dakota. Yeah, I think um, we
0: might actually be playing a little bit after of that, that on my, happened, yeah, on my show um, one on Tuesday. Amy
10: was saying it happened around ten thirty, so I guess they didn't actually break in till eleven. And Yes,
0: he wasn't pronounced it until just after eleven. 11
10: yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I do remember it being about after eleven. Yeah. I don't know why I remember that, but I do remember that. And then the next morning I remember telling my mom and dad about it at breakfast. I always liked the Beatles, but I don't think I really at that age understood John Lennon, you know, the magnitude of, of his contribution to the world. And I remember being more disturbed or bothered by Sean being five. Yeah. Yeah. And having that happen. So, um, but I do remember Double Fantasy and Starting Over and Woman and, and all those songs. I have a, a real vivid memory of Double Fantasy. I think when it really kind of hit me was years later when I was in Central Park for an event and we went over to Strawberry Fields mm. um which was not built or didn't open I don't think until 85 of course it's you know across near the area of the park where the Dakota is and it's it's very interesting because Central Park is its own kind of ecosystem of different areas and there is this sense of kind of calm and quiet in there. And I remember going and everybody was very quiet and there was nothing going on there. There was no like event. It was just people were walking around and as, as people tend to do in um shrines if memorials, leave flowers and teddy bears and, and different things. And there actually is a, I think it's a mosaic of imagine there in, in the strawberry fields. And there was this little kid, he was asking his dad he said daddy did somebody die here or did something you know what what happened here and and the father was explaining this was a very great man who died long before his time yeah yeah so it was a very very kind of you know nostalgic place
0: yeah i always hoped to get to the strawberry fields and central park particularly on the 40th anniversary, it was sort of one of my ambitions to get there. And obviously, I'm not going to New York at the moment.
10: <laughs> Nobody um, wants to go to New York
0: right now. <laughs> but I haven't actually been to Strawberry Fruits and I've been close to Central Park a few times, but mm-hmm. it, it was sort of just getting somebody to go with and, yeah. and finding where it was. And I've never done it. And I really would like to do that. But you talking about that reminds me. So we, we, the, the schedule for our John Lennon uh, day is now up on the Mushroom FM schedule page for people to look at what's on when. I'm doing a show from 9 p.m. until midnight Eastern time at the end of the 24-hour segment. So that's my contribution. And we'll be playing quite a few things, including comments and reactions from George, Paul, and Ringo after John's death and things. But uh, one of the things that we will also play is the BBC news coverage from TV. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was that they were observing that then in 1980 – So many of the landmarks that were about the Beatles really were just nothing special. They hadn't done really anything by then. I don't think people had fully realize the Beatles greatness and their longevity and their legacy. And they're talking about how, you know, the old site of the cavern, there really wasn't anything to market except a little statue that fans had paid for the houses where the Beatles lived. You know, there was nothing special mm-hmm. there. And all that, of course, has changed now. I mean, it's a huge Beatles industry in Liverpool. Oh, yeah. And if you go to the Beatles store, I actually went to the Beatles story and played with the mixer that was used in Abbey Road to mix a lot of the Beatles albums, which I was just tripping out on. I mean, it was such a basic mixer. I mean, my my mixer here is much more capable than the uh-huh. mixer they had that mixed all those masterpieces. And it just goes to show that Paul Holmes, who's a, a very famous broadcaster in New Zealand, said to me once, some of the best radio or audio just comes out of boxes. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not the equipment you have. It's what you do with it. Exactly. But, yeah, I'd like to get to Strawberry Fields at some point.
10: It's interesting how the Dakota has, which I just finished reading a book about the Dakota that took place at the Dakota, and how it has become infamous with John Lennon now, you know. And um, they still get a lot of people, tourists, obviously, that come over to photograph it. And it is a very distinctive building. But, you know, it 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 has become one of those kind of places, landmark places.
0: Yeah. And Sean and Yoko continued to live there. And in fact, I think uh, Yoko still has that apartment. She does. Yeah. Yeah.
10: Yeah. It talked about that in the book and that they said, you know, why has she stayed there? And they're like, well, you know, because that's Sean's home or wish, you know, this is 85 and this, the, stories being told. But, you know, she may feel like she's still close to John at some in some point.
0: Yeah. And plus Sean, it's the
10: Dakota. So
0: Sean know. talks in the show that we'll be doing on Tuesday night, uh, about how he really, you know, he remembers playing with his dad a little bit. And I've got this really cute recording where Sean is singing to John his favorite Beatles song of the moment. He must have been four. And uh he was singing his favorite Beatles song at the moment. And his father, you know, one of the greatest legends that's ever been in music, couldn't even remember the yeah. name of the song that he was yeah. singing. So you have to tune into that on Tuesday night. And it was really cute just Sean playing with his dad. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, he really got into music because – when he played the pianos in that apartment or picked up one of the guitars in the apartment that he knew they were his dad's and it kind yeah. of was his way of connecting oh, cool. to him. Yeah. And a lot of people are very cynical and said, oh, well he, he was just trying to, he got into music because he was trying to exploit the Lennon name. But he said, look, like, he, he got into it as a kid to find some sort of connection yeah. because everybody he met told him what a great musician his dad was. Yeah. And, yeah. Know. So so uh, there's also, I don't know if it's still up on the BBC iPlayer, but we listened while we were on holiday in Queenstown to this really moving thing where Sean and Julian got together and talked about their father. And Mm -hmm. there were others who knew him like Elton John and Paul McCartney filling in gaps essentially for them and answering questions that they now have as adults about what their dad was like. Uh, It's, it's, it's really quite something. And, um, that was very well put together by yeah. the BBC. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of good material. So you will also be on doing a special 80s lady mm-hmm. on Tuesday. And uh not only do we have the double fantasy album, but also, of course, on the night that John died, he was working on the next album, which was Milk and Honey. And then uh, in 1984... Yoko uh, authorized uh, people to sort of clean up that album as much as possible. There are some Yoko tracks on there as well, and they released the Milk and Honey album. And mm-hmm. and ironically and terribly, one of the songs from that Milk and Honey album is called "Living on Borrowed Time." We uh, we've had a nice week. Even despite
10: yeah, the we went to uh, Auckland for the Attitude Awards, which you won um the category for. The impact. Oh, did I? Mm-hmm. Cool. So that was really cool. Well deserved. Um, <laughs> the Attitude Award is the way the disability community salutes achievements. There are several different categories, like the Oscars, and it could be a person with a disability or it can also be a non disabled person who has contributed in some way to the sector.
0: And they don't tell you in advance. No, which so, is good.
10: I mean, why I would mean, you I, know in advance? I got, I got a
0: call a few months ago. I can't remember when it was now to say you've been nominated for the Impact Award. And mm-hmm. the first thing I thought of was, oh, my goodness, if I mention this on the Mosin at Large, we're going to get all these uh, gramophones, not gramophones, what's the word? Grammarians. Yeah, not gramophones. Yeah. Grammarians. Because we already had people complaining about the word impact being used to mean effect, I yeah. think. And they were always whinging on. And then right after all that whinging on on this podcast had taken place, I get this call saying, uh, you have been nominated for the Impact Award. Uh, really? So – I mean, it's nice to be nominated, you know. It's like, and so I, I went up thinking, well, it was nice to be nominated, and then you're sort of sitting there with the very fancy food and mm-hmm. and the fanciest possible of suits yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You know, black tie dinner, and then they call your name, and you're like, whoa! So uh because you just think you're just getting on with your life and doing your stuff, you never think that it's going to result in in something like that. So,
10: but those are quite very impressive people. Um, that won. So it was really, you know, I think, I wish we had given them all awards. But just getting to that point, and
0: but that's why in my speech, I made a point of actually congratulating the other finalists yeah. because I mean they would have all been worthy choices in, oh, our, yeah. in, in my category.
10: Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, which made it even more humbling to have been chosen.